843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Fridays. So we know now, I mean, we, we can debate you know, who the greatest rock band ever is, but we, we don't, I mean, there's a, there's an absolute number of rock stars who have been. Now I'll argue if some of those folks are really rock stars, I would imagine Bob Geldof gets a lot of credit for live aid. I mean, is that sure. fair? Yeah. I mean, he was a man That's of accomplishment anyway. But but he would have a um making the world a better place. Your commitment to making the world a better place seems to gain favor with those who um who do things um like that. So there was a um there was an event yesterday, and it's I don't take any joy in this. I don't take any any happiness in any of this. Um, it it, it kind of corresponds. That there's a lot of places we can go this morning. I mean, the, the obvious uh, the the Twitter story. If this were a ten minute radio show. We spend 10 minutes talking about a guy who has no business being president showing he has no business being president, but it's a four hour show and it, and you know, it, it, it entails a lot of different sorts of conversations about a lot of different sorts of, of things. Um, I'm going to go down this road and then we'll kind of go stick with me for a second. There there's, there, there's a, they are there. If you'll give me a moment or two over the Memorial day weekend, I did some radio work. But also did some, um, am I working out the right way? I mean, I've told you before, my, my desire, my goal is not to play linebacker for the Green Bay Packers. My, my goal is to not, you know, finish a Ironman in, in a faster time than anybody my age ever. I mean, that'd be pretty cool. Uh, Mount Everest, climbing Mount Everest. I mean, all those things are, 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 you know, interesting infatuations that someone who works out has as, um, you know, kind of a ma- matter of accomplishment. Um, you know, I'm, I'm strong enough, fit enough to climb Mount Everest. I'm strong enough, fit enough to fit, fit, you know, finish in the top 5% of my age class at an Ironman. I mean, yeah, I mean, sure though, you're curious about those things, but my interest is, and always has been longevity. How can I add to the years I live a good quality of life? I mean, that's what I'm motivated by. I read a lot about it, Rev's bored with it, but, but I'm big on longevity. Um, am I working out in a way that will lead me to live longer and, and more beneficial? I, I don't want to be 80 sitting in a chair, got a cup of coffee and a grandbaby in my hand, tell Rev to hold my cup of coffee and Josh to hold the grandbaby so I can get out of the chair. I mean, there, there's a functionality about this. Forget Mount Everest, forget the Ironman, forget the Green Bay Packers. Can I, am I doing things now that will allow me to live independent of assistance when I get older? And, and, and most times people can't. I mean, in essence, that's what I'm, I'm talking about. So I'm reading a lot of medical opinions, a lot of um, ex- uh, exercise science experts, and uh, am I doing the things that will eventually add to a quality of life as I get older? I mean, I hope to be 85 years old, going to the gym, um, not asking somebody to hold a baby and a cup of coffee because I can get out of the chair uh, myself. So, so, you know, there's a, there's a Joe Rogan podcast out there with, with a guy who is a, he's a physician, and, he, and he's gotten real involved in exercise science. Now, once again, he's medically trained. I think he graduated from Johns Hopkins. And he offers these opinions on um, what are you doing exercise-related and how does that contribute to the longevity of your life? And he talks about how bad smoking is for you, how bad drinking is for you, how bad high-fructose corn syrup is for you. He talks about how bad uh, obesity is in general on the American uh, public. But, uh, but, but he says the one thing that you can do that will add quality of life. Now, once again, uh, there's an old saying, you can't outwork a bad diet. I mean, if you want to win a, a triathlon, that's true. But when he's talking about longevity, and he says that, you know, 
as bad as cigarette smoking is for you, you can, and let's hypothetically say that a um, that, that a carton of cigarettes takes off a month of your life. I mean, I'm just making up that number. I mean, you've heard the story, one cigarette takes off 17 seconds. I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know how they know if that's true or not, but it's a good marketing. Smoking's bad. I think that's where we end up. Smoking is something, uh, if you want to live longer and live healthier, probably don't need to, to do that. But But he says that, you know, you can counteract that. In other words, as bad as smoking is, as bad as high fructose corn syrup is, if you're in the gym doing the right things, you if smoking, if one cigarette takes off 17 seconds on the average life, 20 push-ups adds 24 seconds. Okay. So, so it's kind of a yin and a yang here. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, obviously, if you're in the gym and not smoking and not drinking and not eating high fructose corn syrup, corn syrup you get in this kind of a, a, a rare quadrant. I mean, they, you know, there are these quadrants of this person does nothing and eats bad. This person does a lot and eats good. You would expect different health outcomes um, in that reality or practicality. So I started reading about, uh, you know, the Rogan podcast, and he started talking a lot about marijuana and alcohol and cigarettes and how the country has transitioned from one uh, to another. And by that, I mean from cigarettes to marijuana. I've got some statistics because I went back and looked after he said some of these uh, things. Um, 48% of Americans say they've tried marijuana. I think 20% are lying. I mean, I think the number's probably closer to two in three. I think two in three in Americans. Now, once again, who am I? I'm not a medical expert. I don't work for Gallup. Gallup did the poll. 48% of Americans say they've tried marijuana. 16% of Americans smoke marijuana regularly. That's twice a week, two to three times a week. I think it's the way Gallup asked the question. Um, 48% of Americans have tried cigarettes. So more people admit today they've tried, or as many people admit today, I think the number's higher on both because there's a certain embarrassment factor. I'm smoking, I ain't telling anybody. I don't want anybody to know. You know, I'm digging into Baptist church that was 30 years ago, and I don't want anybody to to know about it. Well, um, I believe that more than 48% of Americans have tried smoking marijuana. 16% of Americans today admit they regularly smoke marijuana. 11% of Americans today admit that they regularly smoke cigarettes. Now, now that number was about 4% marijuana in the 60s. They were all at Woodstock. Um, and it was five, somewhere around 50% cigarettes. About half of Americans smoked cigarettes in the mid-60s. Only about 4% of Americans admitted they smoked, uh, remember the ma- reefer madness, you know, the the the, oh, yeah. the, the proclaimed documentary. Now, now, alcohol, we're talking about Bud Light a lot over the weekend, or excuse me, uh, this week, and, you know, what should be done to get Anheuser-Busch back uh, in, their, in their lane. 67% of Americans consume alcohol on a regular basis. That doesn't mean every day. That doesn't mean staggering home drunk. You know, that doesn't mean walking across a stage at a um, commencement address and falling flat on your ass. I mean, I'm, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about um, the 48, per, excuse me, 67% of Americans. See what you did there. Yeah. Well, I mean, 67, per, we'll get there. Hmm. Rest assured. Yeah, I'm waiting. Um, because we still got people to say nothing to see here. Right. I mean, we still got people that, I mean, it, uh, look, the, the most corrupted profession in all of this, and I'm talking about the Biden administration and, and, and obedience to government, has been the, the medical media. professional. Well, That's just the medical. Yeah, but the media is, I mean, we don't go to the media and say, what's wrong with me? I mean, we go to doctors, and, and, and I go back to this comment I made. I don't say many things profound. I don't profess to say many profound things. The only 
profound thing I can think of recently during COVID is when a doctor listens to the show, sent me a text and said, you realize that you're not a physician. You're not medically trained. And you're talking about, you know, suspicion of the vaccine. What do you base that on? I mean, you're, you're a former politician. Stay in your lane. I mean, it was not an insulting text. It was not intended to be insulting. It was, um, hey, I'm the doctor here. I know what's going on here. I understand mRNA science. And, you know, the, the CDC and the, and the WHO and the, the NHI, they know what they're talking about, Ken, uh, because they're, you know, they're, they're formally educated. They're physicians. They're experts. And you need to be careful uh, because what it was, uh, some people got angry with me for not encouraging you to go get vaccinated. And I remember saying, I don't have any qualifications to say yay or nay. There is no way in Hades I would get on the radio and say, hey, uh, I'm encouraging anybody who pays attention to what I say to go get a vaccination. I mean, there's no way I would do that. That would be absurd for me to try to give um, encouraging or discouraging advice about going to get the vaccine. But the medical community were so convinced that they knew what we needed to do. And now we're finding out uh, they didn't know anywhere near as much as they as they thought they did. But but a doctor sent me a text one day and said, "Hey man, don't you think you could use your forum to encourage people to do the right thing and go get vaccinated? After all, you're a former politician with no medical training, but you are pretty good at encouraging people. That's what politicians do. You know what I mean? We we, we market ourselves. We market our narrative. We market our." our agenda, our, our, our perspectives, and we try to get people to kind of come along. Okay, I kind of like that guy. He makes sense to me. I'm going to the poll next Tuesday and cast a ballot in his favor. Why? Because oh, he just kind of makes sense to me. I mean, I can relate to him. He says things that I agree with. I, I go back to the, the, during the break, I read the text. During the break, I responded, you have no idea how far in my lane you are. You have no idea as a doctor how far you wandered out of the science of medicine into the world of politics. And so many doctors have tried to defend uh, Joe Biden and say there's nothing to see here. I saw a CNN medical expert last night. I watched CNN a good bit last night for that reason, and they did cover it. But they, they did for a second or two. They showed the president of the United States of America falling face first on a stage and about three or four people helping him get up. And then he points to a sandbag that wasn't there. There's a little lip on a rug. I mean, that's what he tripped on, a little lip on a rug. But the CNN medical expert basically said, well, people over 65 fall all the time. I mean, it's not unusual. No. I mean, people over 65 fall all the time. And when I, when I said the media, I was thinking back to when Trump walked slowly down the wet ramp at West Point, I think it was. Let me ask you a question. And it was headlines. And there were probably medical experts at that point that said there's, a, there's reason to be concerned about the president's health. How old are you? I'm 56. When you're walking down a wet ramp, do you go a little slower? You better believe it. I mean, it's smart to go a little slower when you're walking down a wet ramp. I mean, anybody with sense should walk down a wet ramp with, with, with caution. But And all this ties it together, guys. And, and, and I want to get back to the so, – so Biden falls yesterday. CNN has a medical expert, a, a doctor. I mean, an educated doctor, a trained doctor, a licensed doctor that says – I mean, they do it all the time. People over 65 fall all the time. There's nothing to see here. Nothing wrong with Joe Biden. That's absurd. The absurdity of that statement is alarming. I mean, it's not, it doesn't make me angry. It makes me afraid that we have people so obedient, so blindly committed to what the narrative is intended to be. And we talked about the bi-coastal elites. 
I mean, if you are, if you're living your life to gain uh, adoration by the bicoastal elites, you want to be one. I'm talking about the white, affluent, educated male, by and large. I mean, that's who I'm really talking about. Remember, we talked about beer, the heterosexual, sex, uh, what, straight male. I mean, that's the typical consumer of um, a Bud Light or Coors Light or Miller Light or whatever um, sort of beer you drink. That you know, 80% of beer consumed in America today is consumed by heterosexual white males. Uh, that doesn't surprise anybody, I don't think. Well, I mean, um, there's a certain affluent, educated white male that wants to be adored. Or they, they want to be in the club, and they'll say or do anything to get in the club. That they, they want inclusion. They want to be a part of this. And for them to be a part of this, they've got to say nothing to see here. They know damn well Joe Biden has dementia. I mean, yeah, I'm diagnosing from afar, but it's circumstantial evidence. I mean, how do you deny the fact that something seriously is wrong with this man? And if he did campaign, he'd fall every day. You can't let him do things like that. He can't be on public display as politicians historically have been. I mean, I don't have any idea what sort of a medical cocktail they give him. You know, these State of the Unions and, and these, these, these occasions he does address the, the country and reads a teleprompter and he kind of mumbles and jumbles through some of that. But there are times he's a bit coherent. And I think they have these medical cycles. I mean, I think they treat him with medicine. And I think, you know, at times he's a little better than he is at other times. But to suggest that nothing's wrong with Joe Biden and a medical expert, a doctor coming on CNN last night and saying, you know, men over the age of 65 fall all the time. <laughs> I hope not, because there are a lot of men over the age of 65. Hell, it'd be like the guy in a tragedy. We'd all be laid on top of one another and couldn't, you know, it's, it's absurd. And and, and I want to go back to this. So, so let's take the... The, the health condition of, of Joe Biden. And this is where I get a little bit like Tucker. And, and I want to go down this road this morning. And I, I mean, we can't do a radio um, show on this. And it's real early. And this is pretty complicated. I, I don't want to get too far behind, Josh. Let's take a break here. And I want to come back. And um, I mean, we, we got a lot of things to talk about. Um, normally, we can drill into one subject and drill real deep. Th- this will be a day we probably drill not quite as deep on five or six separate and different issues. Take a break. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. We'll be back in just a few moments. Now, at times, the affliction known as busy head syndrome gets in its own way. I mean, most times, it's a it's a uh, it's a it's a great quality. It's a positive quality to have busy head syndrome if you host a four hour radio show. I mean, you need your head always spinning and churning and coming up with crazy ideas and and you know things to talk about and some make sense and some and some don't make much sense. But at times, the busy head syndrome is an affliction. I mean, it really, and it, and it, and it causes you to not do as good a job as you potentially could because you got just too many things running through. I mean, I'm thinking about reefer and I'm thinking about exercise and I'm thinking about Sir Rod Stewart and I'm thinking about, you know, uh, Pepsi products. And when I'm drinking my Celsius or my fast twitch, I mean, you know, and that I, I, I don't get focused. I'm, I'm unfocused when I get um, that many things going through my head. So let's do this. Let's just ramble. I mean, stick with me if you can, and if not, call in and change the subject and get me back on on track. So let's go to Sir Paul McCartney, Sir Rod Stewart. Well, not a Sir Springsteen. Anyway, that's um, <laughs> that's he fits the bill. Except, except he's American. Well, isn't he is an American. You got to be an American. I don't know. I, mean, I, I don't know it, either. I mean, is it, isn't that a British thing? I don't know. I mean, is it okay? All we've done for them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's the queen or the king. I, I guess, guess it has somebody, to do yeah, the you knighting. Can't, you can't. Everybody that you can't knight an American is what you're saying. I, I, 
I assume not. Okay, but I, I, don't I don't know. know. Never. I, I, I don't know. Pay much well, I mean, Bruce has denounced his citizenship at times, right? <laughs> oh, I mean, when, isn't that close enough? I mean, Bruce has denounced, publicly denounced, his um, loyalty to America. Uh, didn't he say if Trump wins, he's moving somewhere? Yeah. Yeah, well, he didn't do it. Um, but only anyway, hoped. So, so let's stay here. You, you and I did a podcast yesterday to be dropped or produced, published, published uh, first of next week. Let, let's stay in the, in, the, in the Joe Biden rock and roll world. Um, well, stick. No, okay. I, I got. I've got. I've got I'm a reason. I'm trying to follow here. you here. So, if any American rock star deserved to be knighted, it would have been Elvis Presley. Yep, w- without question. Yep. Yeah, but if any, if any rock and roll star in American history deserved to have the moniker or the designation knighthood, it would have been Elvis Presley. I was thinking about Joe Biden yesterday, and I don't take any joy in this. I mean, my parents raised him to be caring and considerate, and, and I care about. I believe that societies are judged by how we treat our most vulnerable. And by and large, our elders are the most vulnerable. And I think we should take care. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that we can do everything we've promised to do in Medicare and Social Security. I don't know that we can or not. Rand Paul gave a big speech about that yesterday. But I do believe that societies, on average, are judged as to how we treat our most vulnerable. Young children, um, senior adults people that really can't take care of themselves. A young kid really can't take care of themselves. Um, Seniors get to a point in their life, they really can't take care of themselves. I mean, if you've made a lot of money and put up a lot of money, you can enter one of these homes and they take good care of you and you pay a lot of money to be taken care of every month. But if you don't, you kind of trust some of these safety nets in in our country to take care of. I mean, Joe Biden's not one of those. So, So what in the world does Elvis and Joe Biden have in common? I mean, why am I talking about Elvis Presley? There's a scene in the movie Elvis. Remember the relationship Colonel Tom Parker had with Elvis? Well, toward the end of Elvis's life, it was obvious his life was totally and completely out of control. But, but he was the cash cow. If Elvis was not on that stage performing, everybody's train crashed. Everybody's life was negatively impacted. And there's a, there's a moment in the movie, and I get, here I go, Superman don't fly. I mean, I'm sure creative liberties were taken, but it's fairly well documented and known from eyewitnesses that they ran Elvis in the ground. It would have been like Secretary of Seattle Slough being asked to race every weekend. You know, not resting, uh, not, 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 you know, allowing themselves to recover. Uh, there's a science behind human beings and athletics and, and horse racing and whatnot. But they needed Elvis on that stage every night because Colonel Parker needed his money. And all the people living out of the uh, the money that Elvis's, you know, um, rock and roll status. I mean, it, it, he was a he was a, an elite rock and roll star to say the least. And everybody wanted to see him and wanted to pay money to see him. And Elvis got a lot of the money, but he didn't get all the money. So there's a scene in an alley in Las Vegas, in one of these alleys at a hotel. Elvis is making his way to the stage, the Sands Club. And he's going to perform his third night or his third performance in three nights. And it's sold out. And, and he's obviously a shadow of his former self. I mean, it's obvious he's enjoyed some high fructose corn syrup. And he's not taking very good care of himself. Now, now we can debate how he got there and, and who's to blame for that. But, but he collapses in the hallway. And Colonel Parker says, all I know is I need that boy on that stage. They were talking about, Colonel, he, he might need a day or two or three off. I mean, you know, it's obvious he's exhausted. I mean, there's, there's some things he's dealing with. He's taking some medicine to keep him rolling and keep him well or keep him alive and, and, and performing. And Colonel Parker said, 
All I know is I need that man on that stage. I need that boy on that stage. And his Elvis's father is kneeled down beside him, Vernon, and he looks up at Colonel Parker like, you son of a... And then he realizes, I need that boy on that stage. It's not just Colonel Parker that needs that boy on that stage. I need that boy on that stage. And you could see the, 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 the fatherly conflict in, in Elvis's father's face when he wanted to punch Parker in the mouth and say, you greedy SOB you, all you're worried about is money. And then he realized, wow, what does my life look like if my son doesn't get on that stage and perform? Where does my income come from? Joe Biden is Elvis. How do the Bidens support themselves if he doesn't stay in politics? How do the Bidens peddle influence? If Joe Biden doesn't stay in politics, what value is an 82-year-old former politician to Hunter Biden, to, to Joe Biden, or excuse me, Jim Biden, to Heidi Biden, to the grandkids who have trust funds, to the grandkids who have um, LLCs and, and they wire money from foreign governments to the grandkids' accounts? Get that man up. I mean, you got to believe the most nervous people yesterday were all the Bidens that live off Joe Biden being in politics. And it's kind of interesting. We, we got an FBI um, director under threat of contempt because he won't, uh, uh, you know, oblige or excuse me, um, he, he won't abide by a um, a congressional subpoena. And, and you got, I mean, all these things play into one another. You know, I, I've never heard Joe Biden sing blue suede shoes. I don't know how he looks in a leather jumpsuit. But there are parallels between Joe Biden and Elvis Presley. I need that boy on that stage. I need that man on that stage. The only value in my life is my connection to that man. I'm Elvis's father. I'm Elvis's manager. I'm Elvis's best friend growing up. Everything I own in this world is because that guy was blessed with an ability. And Elvis has been good to me. And Joe Biden's been a loyal family man. I mean, he really and truly has. I mean, Joe Biden has been a loyal family man when you think about it because he's politically prostituted himself in the name of helping family members who probably couldn't make a living if not for his political connectivity, political connections, uh, p- political abilities. And, and I, I just thought about it. When you watch Joe Biden fall on the stage, you got to believe his brother, his daughter-in-law, I guess his grandkids. I mean, I don't know how his grandkids are. I don't know how old they are. We do know that the grandkids have, you know, um, LLCs and and banking accounts that foreign governments have wired money to. I mean, that's a matter of fact. Completely normal. I mean, mean, everybody has grandkids that foreign governments wire money to. I mean, there's a paper trail. There's a fact pattern here. You know, we had had somebody yesterday say that they knew for sure that Rudy Giuliani was the confidential source in in the FB 1023 document the FBI has in its possession. I don't know that he is or not. I don't have any idea if Rudy Giuliani is the confidential human source. They're going back to the CNN article and Bill Barr in 2020 said that Giuliani is the one stirring up all this all this Ukraine talk. But I guess that's the dots they're, they're connecting there. I, I asked yesterday on the podcast, so if you're affiliated with Trump, if you're associated or tainted with Trump, it doesn't matter if you're telling the truth or not? I mean, is it the source that we're worried about or is it the accuracy of the source? In other words, Drew, Giuliani. I think you know the answer. To well, that of course, I know the answer. You always ask questions. You know the answers. <laughs> you know the answers too. So, so the person said, "You know, well, it's Rudy Giuliani who is a confidential source. So, is he telling the truth or not? 
I mean, are we are the, the only sources to be taken serious are those out to get Trump? I mean, if somebody has negative information about Biden or Democrats or the Clintons, are, are, are they not to be taken seriously? Are they not to be given serious consideration? But, but I just think it's such an interesting parallel. You, you, you've got a, a, man's, a man who has no business doing that job. That night in that hotel in Las Vegas, Elvis had no business going on that stage. And if people gave a rat's ass about him, really, they would have put him in a hospital. And they would have treated him for exhaustion, probably both mental and physical exhaustion. But everybody needed to get paid. And the only way everybody got paid was to get that man off that floor, to get some sort of medicine or cocktail in him, and to get him on that stage and let him perform, however miserably compared to how he formerly did or not. It didn't matter. And we've seen videos. If you, I mean, a lot of us have seen YouTube videos of Elvis in his latter days, and he wasn't the same dude. I mean, it's obvious he was out of it. He had no business on that stage performing a rock and roll concert. But the amazing thing is he still sung like an angel. Well, I mean, it, and, you know? and, and, and I think Elvis subconsciously, well, probably consciously, I mean, he, he knew how many people depended on him. But, I mean, when he, his talent, his ability to sing and hit the notes and his voice was smooth that, like that, it always was. Th- th- there was a few times there at the end he mumbled a bit now. Well, you, you, you know, be, you know what I mean. a few times there at the end, it's like, what did he say? What did, blue what now? Uh, you know, <laughs> hound, hound what now? Well, I mean, I'm not sure I understand. No, no. I, but, I, but, but, but he made some but, iconic but, vocal performances during those latter but days. But natural talent carried the day. That's right. I mean, the God-given talent that he had. Which is what kind of made him But, but you would agree the point I'm trying to make is – there were times in Elvis's life he had no business doing what he was asked to oh, do. Oh, yeah, of course. But he had to do it anyway. That's right. Because everybody had to get paid. Everybody had a nut to crack, a boat to float, a gig to, to take care of. And, and Elvis was the cash cow. And, and I'm not saying I feel sorry for Joe Biden because he's made these choices. And, I, you know, I've said it before and I'll say it again and I'm speculating. I don't have any data to prove it. We know that Joe Biden's grandkid has an offshore bank account. We know that foreign governments have wired money to his grandkids' offshore bank account. Now, I mean, that, that may not be corrupt. That may be normal. I mean, he may say, hey, don't give me the money. I mean, give my grandkids some of this money. But when I watched him fall yesterday, I mean, the human tragedy part of this, I disagree with about everything Joe Biden has ever stood for. I wish Donald Trump was president. I think America is much better and stronger if Donald Trump were president today. But when I watched that man fall, and not be able to get up, and two or three men walk by him and help him get up. I got to believe that Joe, Jill, Hunter, the daughter-in-law, the grandkids, I, I, I just think, I need that man on that stage. I need that man standing up some way, somehow. We got these two beach homes, these two commercial properties. We've got these arrangements. We've got this business dealings. What We've got all these things that entail Joe Biden remaining politically prominent. And, and influential and and if he's not what are we where to go where where do we go and what and what do we do 843-661-0937 got a couple of calls let's take a break we'll come back and um open the phone lines and let you have at it elvis is joe biden joe biden is elvis take a break back in a few three six six one oh nine three seven takes mondays to make fridays my man is up and fail just up and fail, but nothing to see here. People over the age of 65 fall all the time is what a medical expert at CNN said. Nothing uncommon about Joe Biden falling. The, the look on the um, on the graduates is a commencement ceremony. The look on the graduates like, oh, crap. I mean, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a smile, but it was like, wow, okay. Mm-hmm. 
And, and, you know, I mean, the military, by and large, votes Republican. I doubt Biden had the support of the majority of people at that event. But, but the look on their face was like, damn, I mean, he is an old man. I mean, he's a real old man. And watching the president of the United States just fall on his face and three people run to his aid and help him up. And he kind of points back at now the, the, um, the infamous sandbag. Yeah, sandbag. Yeah. Well, I mean, the guy shuffled. Why do you have a sandbag near the president anyway? Somebody needs to be, the sandbag guy needs to be fired today. I mean, if there's a sandbag <laughs> right. guy, he needs to not have a job today, but he's a government worker, and it's hard to fire a government And worker. where was the sandbag in the instances where he's walking up the stairs of well, Air Force One? You know as well as I did. It was or, a sandbag. And when, I mean, he, when he fell off his bike, was it, he hit a sandbag then? <laughs> Let's go to the phone. A bit of a pattern here. Let, Let's go say. to the phone. Let's go to the phone. Matt in Florence. Hello, Matt. Hey, guys, the the crazy thing it really isn't Joe Biden falling over. It's actually something Ken said a minute ago. Uh, whenever you said, is he telling the truth? You actually vetted Ruli Giuliani more than the DOJ, the FBI, CIA, uh, district attorneys and prosecutors for anything they ever accused Trump of. <laughs> and CNN, that, that they're sourcing and all that. You actually vetted Rudy Giuliani just by saying a couple of words on the radio more than anything that anybody ever accused Donald Trump of. And that's crazy to me. Um, honestly, I don't care about the Joe Biden family. I want them to be all investigated. They need to strip all those LLCs from everybody, take all that money. The only good Biden uh, that I've ever known of, uh, he died in the war. The rest of these people are pieces of garbage, and I hope they get whatever is coming to them. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate it. He didn't die in the war. That's just what Joe Biden says over and over right. and over and over again. Bo Biden did not die in the war, despite Joe Biden having said that about 125 times. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. Hey, um, I, I kind of resent, and I, I really made gave me really a queasy feeling when you started comparing Biden to Elvis. Elvis was a good-hearted soul from everything I've ever read or heard about him. And uh, this man is just evil. He sold his soul to the devil years ago. And uh, the hardship that he has generated on the American people and on the world people, I mean, there are wars, ugly wars going on at this very moment because of his incompetence and because he is so ambitious to try and get power that he has no idea how to use. And it's just a, it's a, it's a travesty. It's as, as much of a travesty as these uh, uh, cartoonish and garish uh, female impersonators dancing around. That uh, I would just as soon think that uh, that Mulvaney guy had. I thought I heard him say at one time, but I think it was just my imagination that he said his 365th day of being a squirrel. And because he, he, I don't know what he is, but he's not a good spokesman for anything. And uh, he's not even a good female impersonator, in my opinion. But uh, to compare Elvis with Biden is just uh, uh, not not right. I, I can't get any sentiment or feel sorry for this uh, criminal family. Uh, it's a group of people I wouldn't want to be around, be associated with. Uh, I certainly wouldn't go hunting or fishing with. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. I think the comparison is very appropriate. I think it's 100% appropriate. you got a guy who does no business on a stage trying to do a rock and roll concert. But, but others depend on him 
doing that show for their livelihoods. They have no ability to live the kind of life they're living unless Elvis does that rock and roll show. He is their meal ticket, period. And and, and give Elvis credit. And I do think Mike's right. The good-heartedness, the wanting to do the right thing of Elvis, I mean, he allowed himself to be abused. I mean, you, you got to believe that at some point in time in his life, Elvis said, man, I got no business doing this. I mean, I'm so out of it. I'm so amped up or I, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so, you know, I'm drugged up and, and I'm letting these people do this to me. But, but I think Elvis looked in the mirror and said, I'm kind of all they got, man. I mean, they, they, these guys I grew up with, uh, my family members. I mean, yeah, I probably, I, I think they're taking advantage of me. Colonel Parker, I, I know he's taking advantage of me. But, but, you know, ultimately, this is kind of what I signed up for. I mean, this is the road I chose. And, and they'd, they'd give him another handful of pills and he'd go on stage. And he'd do, to, to Rev's point, the natural talent most times would take over and he would perform. Now, now toward the end, I mean, it got, it got a bit different. I mean, it really and truly did. That's the parallel. Uh, but if Biden is who I think he is, then Biden has been um, the cash cow for most of the Bidens who probably couldn't make. I mean, do you really believe Hunter Biden has a redeemable skill that allows him to live the kind of life that he's led? Of course not. I mean, do you believe that Joe Biden's daughter-in-law has any sort of skill set that allows her to make millions of dollars off foreign governments? Of course not. And I do think there's a similarity there. When, when Colonel Parker said, I need that boy on that stage, and Elvis's father kneeling beside him looked at Colonel Parker like, you son of a... But I do too. I do too. I think the Biden family yesterday, when Joe Biden... They know this better than we do. I mean, they cross their fingers every time Joe Biden is exposed to the public for any period of time. They know the likelihood of him saying something that doesn't make any sense or, or you know, or turning around shaking hands with somebody who's not there or our Secret Service trying to lead him down one sidewalk and he goes, he goes straight and kind of off into the, uh, into the shrubbery. I mean, that, you know, they know his condition. They know his situation, but, but they're abusing. They're doing exactly what Elvis's father did. They're doing exactly what Colonel Parker did. Why? Because they need that money to pay those bills. They need that money to maintain the quality and style of life that they become accustomed to. And he's the reason they've been able to do that. Joe Biden has a grandchild. That grandchild has a foreign, excuse me, a, um, a shell company. Foreign governments wire money into that grandchild shell company. <laughs> Normal, Come on, man. Completely normal. Take a break. Back in a few. 610937 takes Mondays to make Fridays. Um, I mean, we, we talk at times about these controversial issues. I thought about riding over here um, this morning, and I, I guess this is where we are as a country. You know, we have these debates from time to time about America in decline. Is America in decline? Is America not in decline? Uh, what are some of the examples of America not being in decline or in decline? Um, one of the highest-ranking politicians in America fell two months ago, broke his hip or hurt his hip at a fundraiser at the Waldorf Astoria. He's in his 80s. Diane Feinstein doesn't know if she's in Washington or not. She's in a wheelchair. She's completely and totally oblivious to reality. She's in her 80s. Joe Biden, over the age of 80. Um, I'm thinking about uh, Fetterman. I mean, really, the, he's the, not 80, but he's mean? a victim of a stroke. But these people have had a large part of policymaking in America this year. I mean, w what if we had a Republican in Pennsylvania instead of Fetterman wearing a hoodie and um, and dealing with the, the, you know, the consequences and repercussions of a stroke? I mean, of course we're in decline. 
I mean, absolutely were in decline. The people of Pennsylvania elected a dead man and a guy who has no business in Congress. John, I mean, Fetterman has no business in Congress. None. I mean, the ability to communicate is something and comprehend is something if as a senator. A senator ha- doesn't have to run a 100-meter dash. I mean, a senator doesn't have to be, you know, um, let's help, let's check his health status and make sure that, that he's healthy enough. No, I mean, listen, discern, understand, and, and be able to articulate yourself. L- hear and be heard. I mean, that, in essence, is the job of a politician, and Fetterman can't do that. Biden can't do that. Um, McConnell, I guess, is still mentally coherent, but, but he's a frail man. He has no business minority leader. McConnell has a 14% approval rating of his constituency, but he's the highest-ranked Republican in Washington. Of course we're in decline. We're absolutely in, in decline. We're in precipitous freefall, if you want to be honest. I mean, yesterday was kind of a, um, a moment that I think a lot of people said, wow, I mean, that's America. I mean, America's been the, the shining city on a hill, the, the, the beacon of hope for people around the world, and all of a sudden we've elected an 80-year-old man who really and truly can't coherently, I mean, I'm not talking about day after day. I think you catch him in some of these medical cycles or some of these medicine, the, the cycling of medicine. I'm not a doctor, but and I'm forming an opinion from afar. But, but I've got doctor friends of mine who off the record will say, of course something's wrong with the guy. Uh, look, look at his gait, you know, his, his stride, the way, the way he walks. Um, and I mean, this morning he's making a joke about it, got sandbagged and that's not funny, mm. but there's no humor in that. And then he kind of jumps around like he's a, um, a, a spry young man. He's in his eighties and he's president of the United States. The, the absurdity of that. And I'll be honest, the Republicans have to deal with that on their side. True. I mean, Donald Trump is a much healthier man that than Joe Biden. I mean, I'm not talking about his his wherewithal, he appears to have his faculties. He knows where he is. He doesn't uh, misspeak as consistently as Biden does. He doesn't appear to be as frail as Biden, but but he's still older. I mean, he's nearly 80 years old and will be 80 if he's elected president of the United States. I think Republicans have to really consider that. That has to be a part of, of the decision-making process. Rand Paul did a great job yesterday in explaining why he was opposed. Uh, if you didn't know this, the Senate the Senate vote last night on the the debt relief bill of the debt ceiling, raising the debt ceiling, was 63-36. 46 Democrats voted yes. 17 Republicans um, voted yes. So really and truly, the Democrats got this spending bill across the uh, the finish line. Kind of an interesting part that Paul makes, and I've argued with, with many people about this, and Rand Paul was talking about, you know, 18% of spending is all we're debating. I mean, you got to service your debt. What we, we've agreed, I mean, both parties have agreed that, you know, uh, Medicare and Social Security off the table. I guess Medicaid now is off the table. So if you got to service your debt, if Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security are off the table, I mean, that, you know, with defense spending, I mean, that, you know, wh- where do you go from there? Nowhere. I mean, that, there's no way. We're going to run federal deficits in the neighborhood of a trillion dollars annually. But, but Rand Paul said something that I've argued for many times. So if, if, if the federal government is collecting $5 billion annually, and that's what they're collecting, but it really goes back to the school board, the school referendum. To, to me, what a school board said was we need a tax increase. They're saying money's the problem, right? I mean, they're saying money's the problem. Um, the federal government in 2013, and the only reason I say 2013, that's a decade. That's a pretty good snapshot. In 2013, federal revenue 
was $2.8 trillion. Today, it's north of a trillion dollars. That's not doubling from 100 to 200 or a million to 2 million or a billion to 2 billion. We've gone from 2.8 billion, excuse me, trillion dollars in revenue collected by the federal government to $5 trillion. So if we're collecting $5 trillion and our debt payment is $800 billion, I mean, it'll be north of a trillion after some of the debt refinances. But right now it's in the neighborhood of $750, $800 billion. billion. That's all in. I mean, that's financing all of um, the debt. So if we're collecting $5 trillion and we owe interest payments of $800 billion, where was the threat for default? I mean, help me with that. I, I'm, I'm lost there. I mean, if we're collecting $5 trillion, let, let's go to this. I mean, if, if my house payment's 100000 excuse me, if my house payment, make up a number, if my house payment's ten grand a year, I mean, that's what I owe the bank, ten grand a year. I'm making hundred grand a year. How am I not going to make my house payment? I mean, am I going to the movie and not make my house payment? Am I going to a, a nice steakhouse and not make my house payment? Am I buying a new? No, I'm going to make my house payment some way, somehow. And I'm making enough money to do it. So if the government's taking in $5 trillion and we owe $800 billion to ourselves and foreign governments, how are we not, how are we ever in threat of default? I mean, you're in threat of default when your house payment is $100,000 and you're making $10,000. I mean, those numbers don't work. Inevitably, you are going to be in default. You're not making enough money to service the debt. We're collecting plenty of money to service $800 billion in debt, but we're choosing to not be serious about any spending cuts. I mean, that's the dirty secret here. We're in danger of default. How are you in danger of default? I mean, there's a line item in the federal budget, $800 billion, interest on debt. We're collecting $5 billion. How are we in, in threat of default? We can't be. There's no possible or conceivable way we're in threat of default because the politicians have chosen to not cut spending. It's as simple as that. And I go back to the school district. Are there not ways to save money in the school district? Because when Rand Paul gave his speech yesterday, I started thinking about the school district. I mean, the, the, the government is basically saying to you that in order for us to not run $1 trillion deficits, we got to generate more revenue. Now, now, once again, we've gone from two eight to $5 trillion, and we're still spending a trillion we don't have. And, the, and, the, and they're holding this over the American people's head that the reason everybody is so alarmed is we may default on our debt. And if we default on our debt, wow. Well, let me go back to the personal house. I mean, if you're making 100 grand and your house payment's 10 grand and you know that's due every month, how do you not make that 10 grand house payment on someone making 100 grand? Of course you make it. Now, invert that. I'm making 10 grand and my house payment's 100 grand. Yeah, you're default. I mean, there's no doubt about it. We're not in that situation. But politicians in Washington won't tell you. They just have no interest in cutting spending. And when the school board asks you for more of your money, that they're basically saying, we don't have enough. We need more. $14 trillion, I mean, excuse me, $14 million, $3 million, $2.5 million, 1%, 3%, 5%. I mean, that, that's where we're headed. Someone texted me yesterday about a podcast we did. I think we published one yesterday, Rev, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, we published uh, yesterday, and it was one that now, you know, I wrote the title for it. It says, can ask, are teachers paid too much 
asking this on behalf of taxpayers. And we did that to be a bit provocative. Exactly. I mean, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I don't know what teachers need to make. I don't have any idea what an administrator needs to be paid. But but I know that there's enough money in government to do what needs to be done. That's always been my overriding principle. And if you're a school board member, if you're a county council member, if you're a city council member, if you're a member of the General Assembly, if you're a member of Congress, when you ask the taxpayer for more, you're basically by default saying we don't have enough. And I just don't buy that. For the life of me, you can't convince me that we're not adequately funding public education to a place to gain competitive proficiency scores. But that's absurd. The absurdity of that, the, the, the practicality of that. And, and once again, I don't know what teachers need to be paid. I don't have any idea how many kids need to be in a classroom. I, I don't know what administrators' jobs are. I don't know how many buses we need on the road. I don't know how much a school bus driver should make. Now, if I were involved in education, I'd like to believe that I could become competent at understanding the nuances of that business model, you know, the intricacies of that of that business model. But but yes, I mean, we put a, a podcast out, and I asked a question because we one day this week started talking about teachers on 190-day contracts. Teachers on average make, I, I think, uh, across the nation, they make about sixty-seven dollars or $8,000 a year. The, the average income of a college-educated professional is $70,000 a year. Teachers are competitively paid with college-educated professionals, but they're working 170 days, 175 days. I mean, the majority of teachers in America today work 175 days. The private sector worker works 235. I mean, that's 60 days more. That's 12 weeks. Is that not a fair question? And I, and I think in the podcast, I'm not intending to disrespect I have no desire to disrespect teachers. I certainly don't intend to insult teachers. But we can't question those things? I mean, is that where we are in America today? That, that certain things are off limits? If it's Rudy Giuliani, you can't believe it? I mean, if you're questioning teachers, you're out of bounds? Really? You're questioning education? It's out of bounds? This is for the children? This is preparing kids for a brighter future? Okay, sign me up. I want to be a part of that. But but really, I mean, and, and some of the um, some of the messages that were given to people at community broadcasters about what I had to say, I mean, it's it's kind of you know, um, he's disrespecting teachers, you know, he's insulting education. No, L- listen to me again. I don't know what teachers should make. I don't know what it costs to educate a kid, but but I know what the private sector is being asked to pony over to fund every facet of government. And and you ready for this? It's an ass of money. I mean, the federal government's getting $5 trillion a year, and they're asking to raise the debt ceiling, convincing Americans that there's a chance we default on our debt. Most Americans don't know the debt payment is $800 billion. So even the Seinfeld watcher can say, how are we in threat of default when our debt payment is $800 billion and we're collecting $5 trillion. The beast will never have enough money. And somebody at some point in time has to say enough. No, you can't have any more. Do better with what you have. Figure out a better way to do um, what you're trying to do. What is my end game in education? To make it better. And I don't think money's the answer. And at every level, when government fails to perform, they look to the private sector, they look to the taxpayer and say, hey, we need a little more. If we can only get just a little bit more. And I go back to the number I gave earlier this week. 
the government is growing 25% faster than the private sector. If you believe that's sustainable, you'll live in exactly the kind of America that you never imagined you'd live in. Mm. If you believe that the government can continue to grow 25% faster than the private sector, we'll all end up in a place that reminds us of, of a place as history says, you know, failed because of their own internal misery. Let's go to the phone. Charles and Lamar, good morning. How much money was that you said? Uh, what a money. Uh, anyway, <laughs> 55 years ago, the late Senator Everett Dirksen said, when you're working on the budget, it's a billion dollars here and a billion dollars there and a billion dollars over yonder. And next thing you know, you're talking big money. Well, now it's a trillion here and a trillion there. And John David Rockefeller, when asked in the 1920s, when he was the only billionaire on the planet, how much money do you have to have to where you get to the point where you feel like it's enough? And his response was, uh, a little bit more than what you got. And that's the way the government is. No matter what we give them, They've got to get more. They've got to spend more. They've got to give away more. Now, you're talking about these feeble politicians. The fact that the president is physically feeble doesn't bother me a whole lot. I mean, he, it's elder abuse is what it is. His, his family is abusing him so that they can enrich their lives. It's his uh, feebleness mentally. That's an issue. You know, physical feebleness, FDR was in a wheelchair, but he still carried out the job as president. I still think uh, a good presidential candidate uh, for uh, president and vice president coming up will be Biden and Fetterman. That would be a no-brainer. But um, <laughs> you mentioned Diane Feinstein. If she makes it a few more days, she'll be 90 years old in a wheelchair with no idea that she's alive, representing half the population or really all the population of the largest state in the country. And that is damn sad. Y'all have a great day. Thank you, Charles. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937. Yeah, I mean, Go Governor Abbott in Texas is in a wheelchair. I mean, I, I do believe Charles is right. I mean, I, 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 there's something about the statue of a person. I mean, you would agree to that. Um Sure. You know, a, a strong presence, a commanding figure. I mean, there, there's something about that. I mean, Jefferson famously said of Washington, tallest man in the room, he'll be in charge of something one day. I mean, the, the, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but, but I think Charles is right. The biggest concern we should all have about Joe Biden is not whether or not he tripped over a sandbag, but, but the, um, the, the, the fact that he has these days that it appears he doesn't have a firm understanding or grasp of what it is he's in charge of. I mean, that's, that's pretty alarming. He's not running an ice cream stand. I mean, he's not running a lemonade stand. I mean, he's leader of the free world, whether we like it or not, whether he believe, whether we believe he was legitimately elected or not. We have a man in serious cognitive decline. Now, I think the cognitive decline, it does bring about issues with his physical health. I mean, I, I think some of these, I mean, it, it cuts both ways. I mean, obviously, when you, when you begin to lose mental capacity, you, you don't function as well. You know, you, you don't walk as well. You don't, you don't jog as well. I mean, it appears that there's this, um, ah, this, uh, the, the, uh, there's this weirdness about it. I mean, I, I don't know what I'm saying. It's not, I'm not a doctor. I mean, I, I don't know how to diagnose 
I mean, I, if I were in a room one-on-one, I wouldn't know how to diagnose, much less from afar. But, but I do know weird when I see it. And, and when Biden, you know, when the Secret Service tried to lead him down a sidewalk and he, and he continues to walk straight and he walks off in the shrubs and he turns around and shakes the hand of, of a man that's not there, I mean, that, that's weird. I mean, I don't know what the medical terminology or definition of that is, but that's that's weird. I'm confused. I mean, it, it's weird enough when somebody does that that does run a lemonade stand or, or an ice cream stand or, or a bar on the corner. But it's 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 doubly weird and alarming when that guy they say received eighty one million uh, votes for president. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Bobby in Hartsville. Good morning. Good morning, guys. Ken, you know, you have been chastised about this school board thing, and I'll be dog if you ain't barking up that tree again this morning. Now, don't you know better than that? Well, I mean, no. All I'm trying to do is start a conversation, and at the center of the conversation, how much money does government really need? I mean, how much money? I mean, we're we're, we're raising the debt ceiling. And I'm going to tell you what we did, Bobby, real quick, and then I'll, I'll give you the floor. We gave Congress the authority to spend as much as they choose to between now and January 2025. That's the dirty secret in this debt ceiling. There is no ceiling. There is a date certain. January 2025, the government can spend as much money as it chooses to. It is, I mean, we're going from 31.4 to infinity and beyond. And that that's what people aren't telling you. It's not from 31,400 to 33 or 34, 35,000. The government can spend with full authority as much as they choose to between now and January 2025. Ken, I am all for you. I was, I was being a little sarcastic there because you, you've got every right to bring this up because it does open up for discussion. I just wanted to, it kind of reminds me of what's going on because I'm in, I'm in Hartsville. I've got no dog in that fight, but it reminds me of what's going on. We got, There's a Facebook page in Hartsville. It's called, uh, on Facebook called, uh, Hartsville Happenings, it's got about 10,000 uh, subscribers to it, followers. And there's one particular guy, I won't say his name, but he's he's been on there, and he's just, all he's been doing is bringing to light things that city management is doing in Hartsville. And, man, I'm telling you what, he has been, oh, I mean, people are just coming out against him, contacting the administrators, wanting them to remove him from the site, which they refuse to do. You know, they say, hey, he's got free speech. But it has opened up dialogue. I've learned things I never knew before. But what is the harm? Why are people so against discussion, just talking about things? Is there something to hide? Thank you, Bobby. Appreciate that. Well, I mean, I know the person he's talking about. I've read some of that and had some of those issues referred to me. I've had a text or two from someone in Hartsville about us covering um, some of those issues. Look, I don't, I don't, it's not, I don't have a burning desire to be hated, but I don't have a need to be loved. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm just at a point in my life that I'm going to say what I believe. And if, and, if, and, and if certain people get offended by that, that's their problem, not mine. I mean, I revert to what other people think of me is none of my damn business. I don't have any desire to be um, the most hated man in America. So Some relish that. Some embrace that. I don't. I don't embrace that. I don't have a desire for that. But, but I do think that I have the ability and a forum to advance consequential conversations that most aren't willing to have. I mean, when education asks for a tax increase, a lot of you just roll over and say, well, I can't oppose that. That's the kids, and that's making a better community and a better state, a better society. Well, I mean, the next thing you know, you know, we're spending $20,000 per child 
and getting, you know, inadequate education. And this has this never been personal with me. I mean, life's too short to get caught up in personal conflict and personal resentment. I mean, it's nothing like that. Um, I think Dr. O'Malley has done yeoman's work in reestablishing financial sanity in a place that there was none. I think he deserves a lot of credit for his ability to get that school district in a place of fiscal restoration, but, but it's still asking the taxpayer for more money. And I understand the narrative. I mean, if I were education, I would say it's the teachers and the children. The first thing I would do if I were involved in education is making sure the teachers are safe. I mean, I hear that a lot. Believe it or not, some teachers agree with me more than you would imagine. I doubt many administrators believe in me because I think there are too many layers of administration in public education. But, but who speaks on behalf of the taxpayer? And when I speak on behalf of the taxpayer, am I really attacking education? How am I attacking education when I state a fact? And the fact is the overwhelming majority of teachers, somewhere north of 80% of all teachers, sign a 190-day contract. They normally get about 15 days off of the 190-day contract. I understand they grade papers at night. I understand that they carry kids' hands. I mean, teachers are great people. They're role models. They do exemplary work. But we can't be blindly loyal to any profession. I mean, some, some roofers are heroic. Some plumbers are heroic. Electricians, construction workers. I mean, why don't we celebrate them like we do some of these others? And, and I mean, you know, I, I just don't understand that. I don't understand the mindset of someone who says that, that if you question, you, you, you're insulting. If you're questioning, you're disrespecting. That's your problem, not mine. And I'm going to continue as long as I've got a voice in a forum. I'm going to advance issues that I think deserve um, controversial conversations. I'm not afraid to have those. You may be. But, but when I, you know, I mean, it's a little hit dog barks. Am I right or wrong? When I say north of 80% of teachers sign a 190-day contract, they get about 15 days off of the 190 days. They make, on average, in America, $67,000, $68,000. Now, the state average is a little less, but South Carolina's not a real expensive place to live. I think the state average is somewhere around $57,000, $80,000. It's still the majority working 190-day contracts. The majority of people in the private sector work 235 days. That's 60 days more. That's 12 work weeks when you talk Monday through Friday. So, so when, you, when you take that reality, and those are the real numbers, when you take that reality, how can you not at least consider whether teachers are overpaid or not? I didn't say teachers are overpaid. I think the podcast title is, Are Teachers Overpaid? Hell yeah, that's meant to provoke. But how else do you start a contra- controversial conversation when most people don't want any part of controversy? That's the problem in America. We, we become, uh, uh, this gives me an opportunity. I mean, I tell you, the busy head syndrome is in high gear today. Remember earlier this morning, we talked about marijuana and, and cigarettes. Cigarettes, alcohol use is about what it always has been. I mean, it's roughly the same. It, it's somewhere around two and three. Two and three people drink alcohol. Um, smoking has gone from uh, 48% to 11%. So the smoking kills campaign has worked. You know, the sticker they put on the, the pack of cigarettes that says, hey, smoke these, you'll die. I mean, it's worked. There's been a, a dramatic decline in Asia and, and other places in Eastern Europe different. But, but in America, we've seen a dramatic decline of the number of people who, um, you know, um, 
regularly used tobacco products. Marijuana's on the upswing. A lot more people are smoking marijuana today than ever before. It's been legal in about half the states in America. I believe that the government's behind that. Marijuana, the TCH in marijuana, I'll be uh, Cheech and Chong here. Just chill, man. Just chill, man. I mean, if you're in government and and you're advocating for a drug, which is, I mean, TCH is a mind-altering drug, and you're advocating for the legalization of a drug, and 4% smoked marijuana uh, 25 years ago, and today 16% are smoking marijuana, that's a lot more chilled people. What do chilled people not do? They don't get real aggressive, right? I mean, nicotine's different. Nicotine has a total different reaction to the human body. The TCH, hey, man, chill, Bo. Just because he said everything's going to be okay, <laughs> right? Just chill. You, you, so what, you think the government's trying to mellow hey, us out? Hey, man, hey, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Give them teachers a little more money. Give that government a little more money. That thing be all right. Thing will be fine. Fast times at Ridgemont High. <laughs> Just chill. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. <laughs> I don't even know what to say about that. Here, Only here. 16% of Americans are regularly smoking marijuana. Uh, TCH has a very chilling effect on the soul. Are you more or less inclined to aggressively conversate about an issue if you're smoking marijuana? <laughs> less. Yeah, but much less. So you think Chill, the government bro. is would be okay with marijuana because because it chills out the population? Absolutely. Just go along. It makes and get you along. less aggressive in defiance. <laughs> okay. They would rather forty percent of us smoke marijuana, so the masses would be even less aggressive. In defiance, it's an assault on masculinity. It's a ta- it's an assault on independence. It's assault on rugged individual. Yes, call me whatever you choose to call me. That that is my conspiracy theory of the day. The government would rather the majority of Americans wow. smoke dope, so they chill and stop talking about some of these things in such aggressive. <laughs> Fashion. And by the way, I did enjoy your high, mellow voice you just did. We remember Fast Times at Richmond when, uh-huh. uh, when he asked the guy at the convenience store where the bathroom is? Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, first door to the left, and Spicoli walks to the bottom, like, up this big ramp, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, like, up this big ramp, dude. Let's go to the phone. Breeze, good morning. I'll call you right. That's what I'll call you, Ken. You just nailed it. They did the same thing at these middle institutions. They drug everybody up. That way they control, control them. Everything is about control. But uh, you, you were talking this morning that I remembered a quote from Mark Ripetay that uh, that strong people are are more useful and are and are uh, you know you know strong people are hard to kill and are generally more useful. That's the quote. Strong people are hard to kill and generally more useful. And I was looking at your workout, and I would say that for your age group, you're probably in the one percentile, streetwise and. Um, Fitness-wise, there's very few people your age who can do what you're doing, which is a good thing. But get back to Biden. The real simple remedy is a cane and somebody walking with him and just explain the exact reason why. said, I am older, and I don't walk as well as I used to. Now, the part about his cognitive decline, I believe that's exactly what they want. The last, they want somebody compliant to do what they're doing. And then once they destroy everything that they're intentionally destroying, and everything they're doing is intentional. I've been saying that for four years now. People need to understand that. Everything is being done on purpose. So when you blame Joe Biden for everything after he is out as president, who's going to defend Joe Biden? Nobody. He's a perfect scapegoat for everything they're doing. 
the next person they put in, and there's a good chance there'll be another Democrat because they've got this all this this election thing figured out, and it could be anybody. It could be Fetterman. You know, you know, Davis is kind of joking. He could just as easily be Fetterman. I would not be in the least bit surprised if John Fetterman is our next president. It wouldn't surprise me in the least. In fact, I would almost expect it. So people don't even understand what's going on. And I believe that the evil is permeating through all aspects of government and big business and through society. And, you know, to like the public school system started out as a good thing, but like all bureaucracies are like a cancer and they grow until they kill you. And that's just exactly what's happened with the public school system. They have grown to the point to where they are just totally dysfunctional and they never will be functional again. I don't care how much money you put into government education, it will never be functional and all government education is, is government education. The government is educating you to do what they want you to do, to comply, and just like you said with the pot, to not make ways, be obedient servants and workers of the state, be little worker ants, worker bees, or whatever you want to call it, and let the queen and king rule you. It's not, it's not more, any more complicated than that, brother. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. I mean, think about it. If you're in government and you have a desire to control, I mean, it goes back to the Springsteen song, guys. Poor man want to be rich. Rich man want to be king. King ain't satisfied till he rules everything. Do you not believe that? I mean, do you think Bruce is wrong? Forget his politics for a second. Poor man want to be rich. Rich man want to be king. King ain't satisfied till he rules everything. If you are someone with a burning desire to rule, would you rather try to rule people who are in a gym every day or smoking pot every day? You make a It's a pretty point. easy answer, guys. Do you want to do you want to try to rule over people who are independent thinking, v- fiscally healthy, very um v- very connected with themselves, um ha- real sure of their opinions, or do you want to find you know a, a a weaker mass? Of course, you want the weaker mass. They're going to be much easier to control, and and that's the chess in, in all of this. It's not a conspiracy theory. It is chess. And it's, and it's macro. I mean, it's not, you know, this little specific instance or that little specific instance. But, but if you are burning, if you have a desire to rule and control, well, once again, would you rather try to go to a gym and control people who are taking testosterone supplements and bench pressing 300 pounds or go to the local bar where everybody's high on marijuana? Who do you think would be easier to convince you have their best interest at heart? 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Did you notice Breeze said that only about 1% could probably? That wouldn't make me a one percenter, right? Right? That's what he said. Not, not, not in the wealth category, but in the um in the in the wellness. Breeze knows his stuff about exercise science. But I mean, he really and truly does. And I and I'm I I'm to the point you, you get to a point and you're working out and you're like you burn out, you're overworking, and you don't like I don't feel good, I want to do it. Uh kind of hate it. And you need to adjust and revisit. And Breeze has always been my trusted confidant to go to uh, on those sorts of um, of matters. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Seems like you go through that, you know, once or twice a year where you, you re- I mean, reevaluate your workout. Well, you're always wondering whether you're maximizing your time at the gym or not. And um, and this is weird, and this is hard to get through my thick skull. There's there's some days you're better not going than overtraining. You feel like, I mean, you, you want to be motivated, you want to be driven, want to overachieve. One of those things come from my father, I guess. But um, but but at times, you, you're better off and your body performs, but don't go to the gym. And like most Take, of us, 
I'm just trying to figure out a time to make time. Well, to go and to and the gym. I get it. I get it. Um, I mean, I understand it. I, I just, uh, I told you, I read a book, halftime. There was a chapter of the book about the guy that, that, you know, sold a big business, made a bunch of money, didn't have to do anything the rest of his life he didn't choose to. Um, but he started taking physical fitness more seriously because he wanted to be a better person, live longer, quality of life, and all that good stuff that we talked about earlier this morning. And, um, and then he started talking about treating exercise not as an extracurricular, but rather as part of your routine. In other words, he said, you know, at my job, my job includes an hour at the gym, an hour and a half at the gym, two hours at the gym, three days a week, four days, whatever, whatever you come up with. But don't treat exercise as an extracurricular. Treat it as a part of your necessary um, routine. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Jason and Marion, good morning. Good morning, Ken and Dave. Um, yeah, I don't really have much this morning, but I do have something that probably you and Dave and everybody listening is probably going to disagree with, but just hear me out for a second. You got, you know, a lot of candidates now starting to throw their hat in the race. You know, you got DeSantis announcing a week ago, maybe and now Mike Pence saying he's going to get in. And I think Trump is just loving, you know, everybody getting in because he stays about 45%, let's say, and, you know, you split up the other 60%. With these other seven or eight candidates, you know, winner takes all, you know, Trump's the nominee. But uh, from what I've heard, Chris Christie is going to think about getting in the race, and they say he might, you know, decide next week. And, you know, I'm 100%, you know, for Chris Christie getting in. I think it's a good thing. And so if he, if he runs, I'm 100% for it every damn day. You all have a good day. Thank you, sir. Appreciate the call, Jason. I'll say this. I mean, I, you know, to me, it makes perfect sense if you're Christie to run. It makes perfect sense if you're, if you're Asa Hutchinson to run or Nikki Haley or Tim Scott. Why not run? It doesn't make any sense to give those people any money. I mean, if you remember the donor class of the GOP, it's a two-horse race. I mean, you've got Seattle Slew and Secretariat. You've got Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump. This is what Drew McKissick and I have tried to talk about, and I want to be very respectful of Drew. I mean, Drew has an official capacity as chair of the state party and co-chair of the national party, but the days of discussing and debating capital gains, tax cuts and defense spending increases, I mean, that's not where this party is. I mean, this party today is about immigration trade in China. That's where it is. I mean, it's consolidated, uh, kind of a weird array of, of, of suspects. I mean, it's got, um, it's got a lot of blue dog Democrats, Reagan Democrats is what we would have, um, formerly called those folks. It's a lot of people who don't normally participate in the electing and the uh, in the electoral process but but this is not about as much as the bill crystals of the world and the Mitt romneys of the world and the the late john mccain's of the world as much as they'd love this to be about the traditional historic debate republicans have had uh you know capital gains tax rates defense spending increases it's not going to be that i mean it's just not the majority of republicans don't support our involvement in ukraine the majority of democrats do I mean, there's been an inversion here, and I don't completely understand it. I mean, I understand some of it. I mean, I do understand the trade part. I mean, I understand in small rural towns all over America, promises were made that weren't kept. You know, yeah, we're moving the plant, but you won't believe what's going to happen next. I mean, you'll never have to work that 10-hour job, you know, that manual labor-intensive job, but you ain't going to believe what's coming after this. I mean, these service jobs and these, you know, pensions and no, and nothing like that happened. Uh, you know, the, the working class were sold a bill of goods and they were misled and they're taking it out on the GOP establishment. I do believe that there should be an intellectual debate about capital gains tax rates and defense spending. I mean, I, I, I'm all for that. I think J.D. Vance 
and and Tucker Carlson and Blake Masters and and some of these what I'll call modern day conservatives. I mean, I think those folks need to be debating some of these issues. But right now, the GOP is about trade, immigration, and China, and and you know it's a it's a, it's a pretty different place that they are today than they historically um, have been. And DeSantis and Trump are the only ones that I find acceptable. I mean, I you know I I still believe that you know there's a there's a place for Vivek Ramaswamy, but but he's not going to win. I think there's a place for Tim Scott, but but he's not going to win. The 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 data that I saw saw that led me to believe okay my uh, my my assumptions are right is when I read it might have been Gallup or my morning consult morning morning consult had Trump at forty eight. DeSantis at 29, Trump voters for their second choice was DeSantis by 44 percentage points. DeSantis for Trump voters as their second choice was 43 percentage points. That's kind of the exit ramp. I mean, I'm a Trumpster, but I can live with DeSantis. I'm a DeSantis voter, but I can live with Trump. Now, they're going to battle it out. And I think DeSantis is already showing that he's going to, I mean, he can't be, he's not as charismatic. He's not as big a character. He's going to sell competency and and the record. You know, look what we did in Florida. And and I told Rev this morning, I think DeSantis makes a big move sometime after Labor Day. I think you really will see you'll see the polls begin to tighten up. Trump is doing things that, that I think are hurting me internally. Rev said, Can DeSantis beat Trump? Eh, Trump can beat himself. Hmm. I mean, even in a primary, Trump can beat himself. Give an example to throw Kaylee McEnany under the bus like he did, that just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I don't understand that. Well, nobody understands that. Take a break. Back in a few. It really goes back to the notion of, uh, I need a new conspiracy theory t-shirt because of the other ones came true. <laughs> right. I mean, I think I'm losing Rev. When, well, I, when I lose, when, when, when Batman loses Robin, <laughs> I mean, he's in big trouble, and I'm afraid I'm about to lose lose my sidekick here well i and, and i'm with you on conspiracy theories i want to be there and support you and and like you said a lot of these conspiracy theories that we talk about are not theories they end up be, be, being true but i just want to make sure i'm following here when, when you say that this is you know so the 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 growth of marijuana and the popularity and the legalization of marijuana in parts of our country could be a result of a group of people that are in power and control that want a basically a dumb high population that they can control more that's exactly what i'm saying men more than women you know there's a difference i mean despite what society's trying to tell you there's a difference in uh the 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 chromosomal makeup of man and woman (laughs) are you sure men (laughs) genetically have a competitive instinct some have more than others some are hyper competitive um i'm thinking of world-class athletes um you know, I, I, I'm trying to think of a, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson. I mean, I, I'm dating myself now, but I mean, those two guys were not. I mean, obviously, they were taller than average, so they'd be more inclined to be basketball players. But what made Bird and Magic better than everybody? Their competitive instinct. I mean, they're, 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 I'm not saying there's a lot of 6'9 guys, but there are 6'9 guys that were never as motivated as they were to be as good as they were for as long as they were. That, that's a competitive instinct. You know what you probably had a hard time doing? Controlling Larry Bird, controlling Magic Johnson, controlling Michael Jordan, that they were liberated in their competitive instinct. They operated in a world that celebrated that competitive instinct. Tom Brady would be another. Um, LeBron James is somebody highly competitive, unbelievably talented, but highly competitive. 
So, so do I believe that society, and I go back to the Springsteen song, either you believe this or you don't. In Badlands, and, and I'm, I'm being a springsteen for here for a second, but it, and I've always said, you know, uh, Bruce has written a lot of real deep lyrics. This isn't real deep. Poor man want to be rich. Rich man want to be king. King ain't satisfied till he rules everything. Do you buy that or not, Rev? Do you believe that society operates on some ah, some iteration of that of that model? I buy it. Okay, you, oh, you yeah. buy that. Okay, so if you buy that and you believe that men have this competitive instinct, you want to be in charge. Wouldn't wouldn't you like to compete less? Wouldn't you like to see men with less of a competitive I guess instinct? It's easier for you to in achieve other words, your if, goal. If, if the government says stand here and do this, and and sixteen percent of men are smoking marijuana. And they're chilled. They're more likely to stand there and do that. I'll, t- I'll go another conspiracy. I mean, I, you, you think that's the end of the road? That there, there's a little deeper hole than that. <laughs> I think the reason that governments around the world are encouraging men, and I'm talking about men. I can't speak to women. They're, they're wired a little bit funkier and different than we are. Um, but, but I think the the vegetarian diet. I mean, I've read a lot about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you okay. know, um, protein. Is something that emphasizes that this primitive instinct that man has to compete, and it's not primitive. It's it's, it's I mean it's biblical. I, I mean God made man and woman in His image, but they made them different. I mean they, you know genetically we're different, uh, personalities, emotional. I mean there, there are a lot of differences about man and woman, and, and I do believe that um, that the government has conspired with certain forces. And it goes back to Springsteen. Poor man, I want to be rich. Rich man, I want to be king. King, he's satisfied to prove till he rules everything. So if the government has some authority and some control over the masses, they can do some things. If they have more control and more authority over the masses, they can do more things. So I do think there's a gradual perpetuation of that mindset. And if I'm running the government and I believe that I'm, I'm smarter, better, more able, I want to be in control. I deserve to be in control. I need to be in control. Do I want to be in control of a lot of meat-eating men who celebrate that competitive instinct or a lot of men who are vegetarians and smoke weed and are more likely to do what I say? <laughs> wow. I mean, no. I'm not, I, seriously, I I'm not. Yeah, okay. we're, we're playing 4D chess now. Big time. But, but that's exactly what I believe. Without without question, By the way, I think it's that's worth, what I believe. I think it's worth noting, uh, since you mentioned Springsteen, Joe Biden wasn't the, old, the only old man to fall on a stage yesterday. You're right. Springsteen took, but he's the only man that failed with it. That, that we're not sure how he got rich. <laughs> right, right. We know, we we know think, Springsteen where he earned his money. We, we think we understand how Bruce got rich. We're not sure we understand. Mike, I want, I want you to jump in here. I mean, I, that, that's out there. I accept it's out there, but but don't we have to engage in out there at times? I mean, aren't we to a place in America? I mean, we're debating what a what the, what a woman is, uh, what, what a man is. So so if if we're going to have a an intellectual debate about what a woman or man is, surely we can have an intellectual debate about whether government is intending to create a society they can have more control and power over. You know, it's what, what a timely conversation. Last night I was over in Darlington County with a, uh, Sheriff Hudson and some of the constables there at a meeting. And at the end of the meeting, we just started to talk about, well, there's always been differences um, between ideological parties, between socioeconomics, left and right. Um, the absurdity of today is like nothing we've ever seen, especially those of us in, in, in kind of my demographic, you know, late forties, early fifties and that. And like, you think back into what are, has developed us. And 
the conversations that we used to have about, you know, should we be harder with Russia? Should we be easier on Russia? And what should we do with, you know, should we have stealth bombers? Should we not? I mean, those kind of conversations. And now we're having conversations, Ken, that, that get into should a 15-year-old boy, hairy armpits, Adam's apple and all, be able to say his name is Tina and walk into the girl's bathroom and play on her team? Like, that's just not a conversation. Should we be discussing whether somebody who wants federal aid, who's able-bodied, able to work, has no dependents at home, should receive some type of work requirement in order to receive that aid? Like, we've been a country that, to the most part, has been predicated on you don't work, you don't eat. Right is wrong. Now, it doesn't mean we're always going to do right, but you at least established that there was right and there was wrong. And now we're at a point where there's there's an entire movement that says right doesn't necessarily mean right if I determine that it's not right for me. And that humanistic, if it feels good to me, I'm going to do it. If I decide I'm going to lay on the ground and, and claim I'm a cat, I can do that. It is such an absurdity right now. Um, if we don't, my own editorial, we don't get back to Jesus and remember that he is why we're here and it's his grace and his mercy that is helping us to know that the, the, the Bible is the plumb line to keep us straight. If we decide that we're going to make our own decisions and what's right and what's wrong, God help us all. And see, Mike, I believe, okay, I think this. I believe that the secularist, they believe that man is top of the food chain. And that if man is top of the food chain, the way for man to control other man is government. We're not a tribe anymore. I mean, we're a big nation with 330 million people, very diverse, very complicated, very uh, very understood and misunderstood at times. But, but I do believe, and this is a fundamental belief that I have, fundamentally, I don't trust government. I mean, I just don't. I'm sorry. I, you know, I accept government. I understand government. Um, government has a certain authority over my life, and I've got to live with it whether I like it or not. But, 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 I, but I do believe that, that fundamentally we are at a place now that, that those who believe they're entitled to be in charge, and I'm talking about the ruling class, uh, you know, I, you know, and I don't know who they are. I mean, I, I think they're the Davos man and woman. I mean, I didn't get my invite to Davos, did you? I did not. I mean, I, I've done fairly well in life, and I'm proud of what I've accomplished, and I've been very blessed in my life. But I, I, I don't have a burning desire to control people. I'm not in a position to have control over people. But I think you've got to be unbelievably naive to think that poor man doesn't want to be rich, rich man doesn't want to be king, and the king doesn't want to rule everything and if that's the case then where is the limit rev is the limit marijuana is the limit vegetarian i mean I'm, I'm, you see see and i think that's what you and i have to kind of come to grips with that there's 4d chess out there there's a lot at stake it's not whether you sell a truck body or whether you sell a car or not it's control over people and 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 controlling people in america is very lucrative unbelievably lucrative and we talked a lot about Anheuser Busch and Target and 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 BlackRock and and Vanguard, but they're operating in a realm that you and I probably can't really justify nor understand. But but yeah, I mean you know I know I sound crazy when I say that. I accept that I sound nuts when I say those sorts of things. But but I think you've got to put those things on the table and have legitimate conversation. Um, and 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 I know you looked at me funny when I because Rev during the break said so, dude, you mean to tell me that you think? The government is advocating the use of marijuana to make the public easier to control? Yes, absolutely, I believe that, <laughs> with every fiber of my body. And I think the vegetarian diet is a part of that. Protein um, liberates man 
and his competitive spirit. I mean, it really does. But that, that's scientifically proven. I read a lot about this because I work out a lot and I try to take care of myself. And I need so much protein, or the government will take you know take my rights <laughs> my rights away from me. I mean, that, yeah. So so when you hear you know um, big government liberals say uh, meat's bad, you know, I got to cut down the raising of cattle. I mean, I, I do think that that is that is a a a long game play of having more control over the masses. Um, okay, jump in here, Mike. Well, I want to say, to your point, Ken, I think we've seen that control and power is addictive. It, it, a narrative that is being espoused right now to tell, especially those in, in the inner cities and socioeconomic tough areas, not, not just one race, poor is poor, black, white, Hispanic, poor is poor, um, to tell folks you're victims, you need us, you need us in the government to help you isn't for their best interest. It's not to entitle them to, to get a mindset shift, to, to, go to, to go to work, to go to school, to make themselves better, to pull themselves up with the bootstraps, to work the 12-hour days that we all worked here, to, to know when you're facing, man, I can't make payroll, I can't make my property taxes, like I got to keep working harder and harder and harder. The narrative of your victims, let us take care of you. No, you sit home. We'll pay you more to sit home. We'll pay you more to have more children so that you don't have to work. It is social and economic slavery. And, we and don't you lose control of your life. You, you lose, lose control. control of your future. You, you basically give control of that life and future to somebody who may or may not have your best interest at heart. That's exactly and, and, right. And I, I think we're crazy not to believe that that's where we are in America today. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Mike in Florence, you are on the air with Senator Rickenbaugh in Wake Up Carolina. Ken, I called earlier, just had a quick comment and a question. Uh, back on the teacher deal, I believe the contract's 190 working days, plus they get the extra holidays things off, but they do work 190. I'm sure that's how it's calculated. But what, what I wanted to call and ask you is, back a year and a half, two years ago, you were talking about that, oh, there was some money taken through the uh, lunchroom area. They used to talk about quite a bit of money. Was any of that ever recovered? Yeah, I think O'Malley's done a, a, a great job of getting that budget back in order. There was actually, if I'm not mistaken, I, I don't want to say this, I'm sure. I, I'll speculate. Thank you for the call. Appreciate it. If I'm not mistaken, there was a sled investigation. Once O'Malley gets there and investigates the budget, and I'm talking about the, um, it would be the lunchroom uh, I'm dating myself, but I say schoolhouse. So, you know, I'm, 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 I'm old as dirt over here. Uh, I say schoolhouse and my boys look at me like, okay, oh, schoolhouse. Um, right. Okay. Um, but, but anyway, no, no, the, the, the budget was awry and, and money was missing and, and not properly accounted for. O'Malley gets there, cleans all of that up and, and see, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I mean, I can say with a straight face that Dr. O'Malley has been a very, very, um, competent financial minded administrator but i can also question whether they need more money it's almost like we got to choose one team or the other in that and i i just i refuse to buy into that but yes there, there was a there was a situation doing to do with the food budget in district one o o'malley has cleaned that up tremendously and i think we can have confidence that um that things that were happening are not happening any longer. You want to jump in your mic with that? Because you interact with those folks a lot. Yeah, we do. I mean, from all that I've seen and all that I've read, Dr. O'Malley's leadership fiscally has almost transformed Florence School District 1. Um, and in particular, you look at the results academically. You look at the graduation rates. 
um, to see our graduation rates um, top three in the state, uh, right behind York. Um, and, and York's got a lot of Charlotte money right there. There's a lot of money in a district like that. So to see our graduation rates be as strong as they are is a testament to his leadership and the hardworking men and women of Florence School District 1, especially when you bring in the fact that Florence School District 4, Timmonsville, was failing so miserable. Not an indictment of the parents or the families there. They were just failing. Graduation rates, test scores. So then for Florence School District 1 to have to bring in 4 because the superintendent of education was like, look, we nothing to do with four. We got to, we got to consolidate it because they are failing the students. Um, you bring in a lot of students at that point who were also failing, who have, who were medial, had to be brought up to speed. They did a yeoman's job. If we ask the question, what's best for the students? Now that doesn't mean you don't challenge him and say, all right, do we really need to raise taxes right now? And I'm with you. It's not an indictment of his leadership to challenge his direction as far as do we raise taxes, but let's give credit where credit is due. If we ask the questions, which I think we should What's best for the students? The students of Florence County and Florence School District 1 in particular are better off under his leadership. Without question. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Don in Florence, you are on the air with Senator Rickenbaugh. Good morning, y'all. Um, you know, Ken, it was funny how your theory, which I think is more than just a theory, I think it's a practical thing for leaders to do or the kings to do, is to have marijuana legalized. Because for years now, it dovetails right into your education argument. I mean, in large swaths of this country, and God, I hope it doesn't come to this area, but children are being taught what to think rather than how to think. And, you know, you got a bunch of brain-numb adults raising these kids that go along and think everything's hunky-dory no matter what they're telling these kids. And, I mean, you start to see more people getting involved in the school board meetings and whatnot, parents, parents. But I think, it, like you said, it's 4D chess. I mean, these are elements they're putting out there. These are acts they're doing to control the population. They teach them how to think. They tell them what they want them to know. And that's how people like Nancy Pelosi and our president gets elected. Because they're told to, to vote for them. They, you know, they don't have any critical thinking skills. They don't have any deductive reasoning skills. So, you know, because they don't have to use it. They're just told what to think. So I, I agree with you on that. I think it's more than just a conspiracy theory. I it, think. It, well, and, and thank you for, for appreciating the call. And, and if I were king of the world, and, and Mike's like, I'm getting out of here, man. You guys are freaking me out of it. This is real talk radio. I mean, this is what talk radio is famous for. Uh, in the twilight zone. No, if I were king of the world, you know what I check every day? Meat consumption and production and marijuana consumption and production. I went during the break. I mean, I'm weird like this. I looked up corn, soybeans, um, hay, wheat, cotton. They're all in decline. We're not producing as much of any of that as we were 50 years ago, but we're producing more cannabis than we ever have. Cannabis is the sixth largest produced crop by volume in America today. Uh, that may not mean anything to you. And maybe I play chess when checkers is appropriate. Maybe I mean, I, I know this about myself. I will complicate the simplest thing in the world. I, I'm, I'm bad about that. I mean, it can't be that simple. I wish I were Jeff Spicoli at times. You know what I mean? <laughs> I wish I was high staggering out of van and didn't have to worry about anything. But I've chosen a life that demands responsibility. Mike's done the exact same thing. And you're always thinking about, am I missing something? Am I not thinking about something? So if I were king of the world, 
and somebody gave me one report every day to, to stay king of the world, it would be how much meat is man eating and how much weed are people smoking? Because if, if smoking weed is on the, 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 the incline and meat eating is on the decline, th- then I think we're inhibiting that primitive spirit that man has to compete. And that's to compete for control of, of – I'm not talking about Larry Bird and Magic winning a basketball game. I'm talking about competing for having control of my life, and I'm more willing to give that control over, to Mike's point, uh, generationally to government, if I don't have that burning desire to control my own life. And I do think that government has, in certain places in our society, socioeconomically challenged in particular, um, you can't make it on your own, so let us help you. And, and anybody would say, hey, man, if I can't make it on my own and this person wants to help me, why wouldn't I let them help me? Well, the next thing you know, you're standing around with your hands out like, well, where's the help? I mean, I don't know how to be independent. I'll give you an example. I'd love to get Mike's take on this. So, so when Hugo hit Mike, I'm here. And, um, and I watched Neighbor Help Neighbor. I don't know anybody in my world that said, where's the government? I mean, where's the government? I mean, I, I remember people being distraught and discouraged and worried and nervous. But I can remember my, my dad. I mean, we had two bulldozers. He filled them both up with diesel. You get one, I'll get one. Go clear this drive. I'll clear that drive. Everybody had tractors and chainsaws. and But but I don't remember. I mean, I know FEMA came, and I know federal money was made available, and I know the cleanup was on the dole, so to speak. But at the beginning, I remember Mike Rickenball looking at me and saying, hey, man, you need help. You got this tree on it. Yeah, all right, let's help one another. After we finish here, let's go to such and such's house. Juxtapose that to Katrina. When Katrina hit, CBS News went to Katrina a month after the flood subsided, and there was a lady, an African-American lady, and she said, the government's not cleaning my yard up. Um, the government's not helping me put my house. house. That's generational. That's a woman who was convinced you're better off not having control of your life but somebody taking care of you. And, Mike, you know as well as I do, that's not the, the way the world's supposed to work. It's the greatest form of tethering. Um that I've, that I've ever seen in, in my lifetime. Compare it to the circus, Ken. That ringleader in the circus who's three feet away from that lion, that lion has the ability to rip his head off in a matter of moments. Why does it, the lion not do it? Because the lion cannot feed himself without the circus feeding him. You control someone's livelihood, someone's ability to eat, someone's ability to live, they will become domesticated. So the, the proud 800-pound lion lets the scrawny 120-pound-year-old guy lead him around, whip him, run him in circles because that lion, who could go feed himself at one point before he was domesticated, now says, you know what? I'll stand here and I'll lean on my back, back legs if you feed me. That's what, as a society, we're doing when we say to the government, I won't work. I'll let you send me money and I'll stay home. I'll smoke weed. I'll play video games. I could work. There's whole, so many jobs out there, but I choose to stay home. I'll let you take care of me. And the worst concession you could ever make is having lost control of the very life you have. Let's right. take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. So that a little hummus and some weed. We're good to go now. Huh? Humus or hummus? <laughs> is it hummus? What did I say? You say humus. I'm sorry. Hummus and some weed. My bad. Um, I wasn't going to say anything, Dave, yeah. but he did say I said humus. Um, hummus and some weed. We're good to go. Um, Jeff Spicoli will be here in the 9 o'clock hour. Right. I hope he brings and, uh, a pizza. We'll, we'll, have a, we'll have a chilling good time in the uh, in the last hour. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. David in Lumberton. Hi, you're on the air. Hey, yeah. A um, couple things. Uh, the, the marijuana um, market, uh, 
90% of this is done because of money. It all, all just comes back to money. Uh, they don't allow you to really grow it in your backyard because they can't control it. Whereas you can, you can buy it in some states, you know, legally, but why can't you grow it in your backyard? You can grow corn, wheat, so on and so forth. Um, the other thing is, is with schools, the problem with schools is political. I taught 34 years. Last few years, I was actually in the Florida school district uh, during the COVID era. And we were told about halfway through our COVID year that we couldn't mark the kids absent. And the reason we couldn't mark them absent is because evidently their attendance is tied to their social programs. And if the kids didn't attend school, their social programs got cut. So rather than ensure that the kid goes to school or sits in front of his computer, they just told us don't mark them absent. So, um, you know, Ken, I don't know how it was when you grew up. I'm about your age, I think. I'm in my 60s. But if you failed your classes, you didn't get moved on. That's just the way it was. Now it's not that way. And the problem with that is, is when you fail a kid, say, in fifth grade, and you get him in sixth grade, the chances are he's not going to pass in sixth grade either. And the problem with that is now he's just perpetuating a failure over and over and over. And the teacher's going to get blamed because that kid failed in sixth grade, but he didn't pass in fifth grade either. So you can't blame the sixth grade teacher. But that they're passing it down to them. But that's just my, my insight to what little I know about the whole process. Thank you, sir. Uh, speaking of holding back, my dad liked the seventh and eighth grade so much he's tried them twice. <laughs> he spent four years in the seventh and eighth grade. <laughs> and, uh, and that's just the way it was. I mean, he didn't do what it took to get to the next grade or advance to the next grade, and you, you do it again. And then the same thing in the uh, in the eighth grade. Um, he was not academically inclined, not not very interested in, in academics, more interested in what the world, you know, what, what lied ahead or what way he could make a, a better living. But 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 anyway... I don't know what the problem with education. I'll give my I'll give it back to Mike here. Here's what I'm saying. <clears throat> I don't know what a teacher should make. I don't know what administrators should make. I don't know how much we should spend per pupil. But but I just refuse to believe that every time something underperforms, money's the problem. That that's where I land. I mean, it, politics in general say that if we're not doing as good a job as society suspects us or expects us to do, then it must be we're not getting enough money. And, and commerce needs more money, and education needs more money, and infrastructure needs more money, and judiciary needs more money, and higher education needs more money. Well, every time you take a dollar out of the private sector and transfer it to the public sector, it's less likely the private sector grows as fast. And that's the goose that laid the golden egg. And that's my concern that, that we've convinced, or certain groups in America have convinced the public that if education is underperforming, it must be underfunded. And I just don't buy that, Mike. Yeah, and I would agree with you, Ken. I, I really would, especially because when I talk to, to teachers, and, and Sharice and I, we travel between all of the school districts in our district, and, and we don't just talk to the administrators. We talk to the teachers. Uh, they're frustrated, and I mean frustrated to the point where they're leaving the industry of and the profession of teaching at, at record levels but they're not just frustrated because of the money. Would they like more money? Absolutely. But what we hear more often than the money is the fact that they're asked to not just teach. They're asked to parent. They're asked to discipline. And they're asked to do parts of the of, of society's jobs, of parents, not society, of parents' jobs that they were never trained for or even paid to do. So if we don't get back to, as a society to a culture that says, 
you parent your child, you discipline your child, you raise your child. And in the school's job, don't send them with, with bad attitudes, disrespect, a complete disregard for, uh, for leadership and for discipline and for authority, and then expect the schools to fix that. Because you can't take a 22-year-old who is making $40,000 a year and asking them to, to raise a 17-year-old, 250-pound young man and expect if that young man is going to, I mean, call them F-bombs. I mean, say all kinds of things and think that they're going to make a life of that, make a profession of that. We got to get back. And again, I know people are tired of hearing the refrain. We took prayer out of schools. We took the using the name of Jesus. We use we took out the Ten Commandments. We took out the biblical standards. Not that everybody had to follow. You could be, you could worship whatever God you wanted, but this was an option because a country was founded on that. You take that out, you put in a socialistic, humanistic, everybody gets to do what they want, and you got kids coming to schools that are just bad, bad actors. And it's unfortunate to say. And Mike, we as go- as a government have decided to incentivize an absentee father. Yep. I mean, yeah. we, we really can truly have them. Absolutely. There, there are several, and you, you can you can argue indirectly no we have not but we have i mean i mean that there are many 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 financial uh incentives out there funded by the government that make it financially more advantageous for a young female to have two or three kids and no man in the home and that's i mean that that's who these parents excuse me that's who these teachers are having to deal with we, we talked to these some of these young women and we asked them like you don't have to keep having babies. If you're going to keep having sex and you're unwed and you're 18 and you're on your second child, let's talk about how you stop this cycle because you're creating the generational cycles here. And we've heard them say to my face when Sharice and I, we sit and we talk in counsel with them, but the, I will make X amount more money if I have a third child. Ken, they'll say it to our face. They know the dollars that they will make in addition. But Mike, that's not their fault. It's, no, it's I mean, not. They, they, they have been incentivized yeah. for that to be normalized. I mean, that's the government's fault for allowing that to be um, as normal as that's it right. is. You don't blame the lion for the lion tamer feeding the meat and the lion being domesticated. You don't blame the individual. You blame the system. Last night, as mentioned, I did that interview with TBN, Trinity Broadcasting, about my, my, my story, my, my adoption story. My mom was 14 when she had me. And off air, they wanted to talk about, well, how do we fix this? How do we stop this? You know, other social programs say, what, what can be done? And my answer to them is, you don't stop this by throwing money at it. You got to stop it by changing a cultural and a societal shift where we want to enslave people by making them dependent upon the government. And we tell them, you got to go to work. And young lady, you don't make more money by having a third or a fourth child. You got to stop this because the the faucet gets turned off. But then we got to have the bigger conversation. What do you do to those three kids in the house? Sure. Like, I don't know. How do we fix that? Correct. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Jim and Sumter listening to WDXY. Hi, Jim. You're on the air. Hey, Ken. Uh, hey, uh, Senator. Um, so I see a commonality in all of your conspiracies this morning. I'm not going to say theory because I don't believe in theory at all. Um, technocracy and transhumanism. A technocracy started in the 1930s. And to, to your point about marijuana, think about the evolution of propaganda and control that was exerted. Originally, our founding fathers and one of the cash crops of America was industrial hemp. And the oil industry saw that as a major threat. So what did they do? Reefer madness 
if you recall. Government-run PSAs that black black men are going to rape white women, that sort of thing. And that led to the prohibition of marijuana. The, the, the purpose behind it was actually that industrial hemp threatened oil's ability to produce plastics. So this is one of those cases where it was all about the dollars. Now, why do I say technocracy? Because technocracy is a movement that started in the 1930s and gradually morphed into what was known as the New World Federalists in the 1960s through 70s. And today, technocracy is alive in every single facet of every single thing that you talk about on your show. And I've been listening for the better part of three years now. Technocracy is the idea that a unelected group of bureaucrats would run a one-world government through what's called communitarian law, not individual law, not laws granted by government. Their motto literally is, no God before government. So this explains what the senator was just talking about, about taking God out of the schools, taking you know Jesus and even saying the Pledge of Allegiance, because a secondary ideology of technocracy is that there should be no borders, a borderless world, a disarmed world, only the United Nations, the one world government is armed. Um, and you combine this ideology with the transhumanist agenda, we see this with... Well, let me stop you there. When you say the, 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 the transhuman agenda, you're talking about uh, AI and anti-aging and all these other sorts of things? It, it would seem like that that's the superficial discover, you know, discussion on conspiracy channels. It goes much deeper than that. If you... I, and I and I would really appreciate it. Ken, I know you're a homework guy. <laughs> if you just write down the words technocracy, transhumanism, and communitarian law, you're going to have an awakening this weekend. Because when you look at these three different categories, transhumanism is more about social engineering to change what the definition of a human is much like we changed the definitions of man and woman recently to the point where supposedly educated people can't even explain what a woman is we're slowly gonna use social engineering taking the idea that words are tied to ideas and then if you take away the words or you change the definitions of the words you change fundamentally the way people think hey well, I, i'm not trying to cut you off but we got to take a break we're against the break um an interesting, interesting. concept very very interesting i hear uh, more conspiracy yeah the weeds get taller Coming our way the weeds get taller on wake up carolina take a break back in a few a trillion here a trillion there sooner or later you're talking about real money right <laughs> uh yeah. a trillion unfortunately bucks. i still believe this i think a million is understandable a billion is um, you know, a, a, it's a big number, but they're billionaires in the world. A trillion is almost an unfathomable number. I mean, it really and truly is. A trillion seconds was 32,000 years ago. Um, the government spending somewhere in the neighborhood of $6 trillion annually. And now we've authorized, I mean, this was um, before the Senate last night, 
I think a 63-36 vote, if I'm not mistaken, 46 Democrats. Don't hold me to this number, 17 or 18 Republicans voted in favor of raising the debt ceiling yet again. Fox News Radio's Jared Halpern is with us in our nation's capital. Jared, good morning. How are you? Good morning. How are you? So a trillion and a trillion and another. Sooner or later, we're talking about talking about real money. But, Jared, my interpretation, I want to get your take. My interpretation is, 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 is time sensitive but not locked to a number. In other words, they can raise mm-hmm. the debt as much as they choose to as long as it's done before January of 2025. Probably a little bit longer than that, but you're right. This is a debt limit suspension, not a debt limit increase. And that has sort of been the way that it's worked the last couple of times uh, they've done this. Congress can either set it to a specific dollar amount or they can set it to a specific uh, time frame. And in this case, what they agreed to do uh, was essentially tie it to the same time frame of uh, the two-year budget agreement that is a part of this deal, right? So you have these budget caps that are in place now for the next two years, and then that is tied to this increase uh, or the suspension of the debt limit through uh, January of, of 2025. That certainly gets Congress, gets the president, gets lawmakers through uh, the next round of elections, takes this off the table um, during the election season. But it probably provides a little bit more time than that, because as we've seen in this episode and in the previous episodes, the Treasury is able to kind of use what they call extraordinary measures uh, to move that timeline down the road if they need to. So in other words, if we get close to January of 2025 and Congress has not yet taken action to address the debt limit in some form or fashion, expect the Treasury to say, listen, we're going to take a couple of steps here, probably buy some time into maybe March, April, or May. Jared, is there anybody in Washington who you'd call a deficit hawk? And by that, I mean articulating sure. in an intelligent way the rationale of why we need to be serious about stop spending money we don't have. I think everybody is, right? But how are you going to do it? What, what are the two biggest drivers of spending in this country, the two biggest drivers of debt in this country? That would be Medicare and Social Security. I, the, well, that's one, right? That's one avenue. So that, that's the mandatory spending side, right? And, and nobody's really made a move to touch that, to bring that down, because that's politically very unviable. And on the other side of the ledger, what's the number one driver? Defense spending. The defense, defense spending, right? So in this budget deal that was just agreed to, defense spending is capped. But we have already heard, especially from Republicans in the Senate, that they are apoplectic about these these um, caps on defense spending, and they want more money allocated for defense. What you saw yesterday before this vote happened was a statement come out by Schumer and McConnell that basically suggested, yes, in the appropriations process, we can set up a fund if we need to to increase the amount of spending for things like preparedness for Russia, China, any other na- national uh, emergency, uh, national threat that, that may come sort of above and beyond whatever threshold cap is set in the um, in, in the uh, budget. And we saw that uh, in the last time that, that we saw this process in 2011 when there was a debt limit deal. They did a cap very similar to this, right, where you cap defense and non-defense spending, but they set up what was called an OCO, an Overseas Contingency Operation Account. And that was off-budget spending that went to the Pentagon for this very same reason. So, yes, I think that there are a lot of deficit hawks, but you don't have sort of consensus among all of them about how you actually tackle the deficit because you can do it through a couple of ways, cutting spending, cutting uh, or reforming the way that, that entitlement spending works, 
or raising revenues. And none of those are, are really politically viable of any time, but particularly uh, when everybody's running for re-election. But, but Jared, am I right to say, and, and you would know better than I, in the House, for to get out of Rules Committee, Thomas Massey voted um, for the advancement of the bill to the full floor and then eventually to the Senate. But, but I read some of the language of what Massey requested and what it looks like he got, and that is if they mm-hmm. don't appropriate as they're constitutionally obligated, and I'm talking about the appropriating committees, the, appro- the budgeting process yeah. as we understand it, that it comes with a 1% automatic spending cut. In other words, if they choose to do a CR or an omnibus bill, Massey's, Massey's idea, I guess, it's not an amendment, but Massey's his ask and get is that the, the CR – would, would force a 1% spending cut across the board. Is that a proper interpretation? I think so, although there seems to be some discrepancy about whether or not they could do an omnibus. In other words, um, because what an omnibus is, is basically combining all of the appropriations bills in the one package, right? So Correct. You, you could do an omnibus, I suppose, to get around that. And, and this would sort of be a, a cudgel on preventing sort of these short-term extend spending, sort of the CRs. Um, but again, these are all things that technically are not binding in budget kind of deals. These are written in, in, in the congressional language, to be sure. But the appropriations process is a separate process. Um, and so that process will still work its way out. In other words, if Congress decides that we are going to bust budget caps in the appropriations process, um, I mean, we've seen them do that before, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Sure. Last question, and um, appreciate your candor and honesty yeah. and understanding of the, of the complexities here. I've tried to talk about it as much as I can over the week. Is there a number out there that concerns Washington? I mean, you know, you got Keynesian economists, modern monetary like theorists, you got deficit hall. But, I mean, is there a number out there that, that seems to alarm even uh, the most liberal spender of, I mean, of government I money? I don't know if there's a number. I mean, certainly you see a lot said about sort of what's the debt ratio to GDP, and that seems to be sort of a a formula that a lot of people tend to look at. But again, um, even if you had sort of consensus on the debt shouldn't get above X dollars or shouldn't be above X percentage of GDP, you would still need an awful lot of bipartisan buy-in on a strategy to drastically reduce the debt or deficit, right, which would come with a lot of challenging political questions. Are you going to modify these uh, government programs like Social Security, Medicare, that a lot of retirees depend on? Are you going to cut defense spending? Are you going to cut other spending? Are you going to raise taxes? Are you going to raise revenue? Um, All of those are, are things that have to be a part of a conversation um, and there are certainly debates on that happening, right? But you're going to need, ultimately, at the end of the day, some sort of bipartisan agreement like you just saw to get something like that across the finish line. Well explained. Jared, thank you for your time. Have a great weekend, sir. And that's just, I mean, when you really get down to it, I mean, Jared explained it. I mean, you got, you got mandatory spending, which is off limits. That's Medicare, Medicaid, uh, Social Security. You've got defense spending. Non-discretionary defense, non-defense discretionary spending is only about 16% of the budget. And I mean, if we're looking at that as for places to cut, I mean, it will never balance the budget. I mean, there's no way to get there without addressing entitlement, period. I mean, there's just no way.
And when somebody says we're going to balance the budget, but we're not going to touch Social Security, we're not going to touch Medicare, we're not going to touch Medicaid, I mean, they're, they're just being fundamentally dishonest. I mean, there's no way to get there. They're the drivers of the debt, and they're, they're two-thirds of our budget. I mean, Rand Paul really did an excellent job yesterday on the floor of the Senate saying what I've been saying. Now, I'm not saying Rand Paul's not plagiarizing uh, yours truly. I'm sure he's not the only guy saying this, but he articulates it, and he's been very consistent. I mean, Rand Paul's been a very consistent deficit hawk. He talks about the dangers of our federal debt. Other than Mark Sanford, I don't know anybody's career who has been centered around kind of a central theme. I mean, Rand Paul's father, Ron Paul, you know, kind of opposed the Fed, opposed deficit spending. I talked about the um, the inflation it would lead to, the decline of the dollar. Uh, we'd lose our world standing uh, once they begin to transact trades. I mean, I've talked about the petrodollar, petro petro one. Um, it's just unusual to me that the Republicans, the party of fiscal restraint, believes that there's a win here. There's no win here. I mean, there's just no win here. I want to make sure I understood what Jared Halpern said. He said this basically, it doesn't raise the debt limit. It just suspends the debt limit altogether until 2025. They can spend as much money as they choose to between now and January of 2025. I mean, they they could, hypothetically, I mean, I don't think they will. Who knows? I mean, they could could spend another $30 trillion that we don't have. Now, I don't know if the markets would, 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 you know, buy the debt. I mean, I have no idea. Let's do this. Let me see if I can find this. Let's take a break. I know it's a little premature, but Rand Paul has about 13 or 14 minutes of floor speech yesterday that really explains in in very vivid detail where we are, what needs to be done, and Washington's absolute disinterest in doing anything. Take a break. I'm going to try to find that back in just a few. Two trillion dollars. How did we get here? Whose fault is it? Republicans? Democrats? Well, the answer is yes. Both parties are at fault for different reasons. Republicans come to this floor and will come to this floor today saying, we need unlimited military spending. And Democrats will come to this floor and say, we need unlimited welfare spending. And guess what happens? They compromise. People say Washington doesn't compromise. They compromise all of the time. That's what this debt deal, debt deal that's before us is, is compromise. But the compromise is always to spend more money. How do we know that? The debt deal that's been crafted by Biden and McCarthy is an unlimited increase in the debt ceiling. See, historically, when we raised the debt ceiling, it would be $100 billion or $200 billion or, God forbid, a trillion dollars. It was a dollar amount. This debt ceiling will go up till January 2025. How many dollars will be borrowed? As many as they can possibly shovel out the door. It will be how much money can you shovel out the door until January 2025? That's how much we will spend. Is there a dollar amount? No. How much can you shovel it out and how fast can you shovel it out? There will be no restraint from this debt deal. There is a pretense. There is a playing around the edges as if, oh, there might be a cut here or there might be a cut there. There are no cuts. Why? Two-thirds of your spending is entitlement spending. The on-budget entitlement spending is Medicare, Medicaid, food stamps, and other programs. They are called mandatory and no one ever looks at them. They go on in perpetuity. This is what drives the deficit. Who took them off the table? How come there's no discussion of this? 
Actually, Republicans took them off the table because they fear being criticized by the Democrats. It's being used in the presidential campaign. Let's not talk about the entitlements, but that's two-thirds of what gets spent every year. So if you don't talk about the entitlements, if you don't talk about mandatory spending, you're frankly not a serious person, and you will not make a serious dent in this problem. So we've taken off the table all mandatory spending, no discussion of it. Does this mean they're in good shape, that Medicare and Social Security and all these programs are in good shape? Heck no, they're not in good shape. They're all running out of money. They're headed towards bankruptcy. Is anybody brave enough to reform them? No, not a damn thing's going to be done for any of them. But when you take them off the table, take all the entitlement spending off the table and do nothing about it, now we're down to one-third of the budget. So now you're going to try to do budgetary reform while excluding two-thirds of the spending on one-third. But it's worse than that. All right, we got a bully ad here, Josh. I told you to be ready. Give me two, one. All right, let's go. The one-third they call discretionary spending. It's about $1.6 trillion. Half of that's military. So they took that off the table. So mandatory spending entitlements is going up 5% under this deal, because that's what it's been doing for, for years and years. It's going up at 5%. Military is going up at 3%. So what are we left for? What are we left looking at? We're looking at one-sixth of the budget, somewhere between 15 and 20%, a small sliver of the budget. It's called non-military discretionary, and they think we're going to do some kind of fiscal reform on that small sliver of government. Well, guess what? You can't do it. You can eliminate all of the non-military discretionary money. Leave the mandatory in place, leave the military in place, increase them, eliminate all of this other chunk of money, and you still never balance a budget. See, there was a time when there was a conservative movement, and the conservative movement had a voice in Washington. There's still some voice, but not much. But there was a time when people on the conservative side of this said, well, in order to be a thoughtful, rational, realistic, strong response to the budget deficit, you would have to balance your budget in five years. In fact, we voted on a constitutional amendment in this body, and every Republican voted for it. But it said you had to balance five years. Why five years? Well, because most of the plans that lasted longer than that, most of the plans that balanced in like years nine and ten, were basically somebody fudging the numbers and hoping something good would happen in year nine or ten, but the only years they actually had any power over the first year or two, there weren't very many cuts. And they always had unrealistic expectations in year ten. So what have I done? I've said, let's look at balancing this in five years. What would it take? So about five or six years ago, I began introducing something called the penny plan. And what would it do? It would cut one penny out of every dollar. It actually would balance. Actually, the first year I did it, it didn't even cut 1%. I froze spending for five years, and the, balance, the budget would have balanced. But the trick is, or not the trick, the truth is that you have to cut all spending or freeze all spending. You can't just freeze a sliver of the spending. So people have talked about, oh, there's a 1% trigger on the, non, on the discretionary spending. That's $16 billion. They're going to add $4 trillion in debt over the next two years. And they say, but by golly, we might save $16 billion, which even that is not going to happen because the trigger isn't real, doesn't have muscle, and will be evaded. But the thing is, is that if we were to balance the budget over five years, what would happen is there now needs to be about a 5% cut of all the spending each year for five years, and then the budget would balance. And you say, well, isn't it just a number? What would that mean to real people? Why do I care whether the budget is balanced? Well, 
Go to the grocery store. Go to buy gas. Go to buy anything. Go to pay your rent. Look at your cost of living and look at what inflation is doing to you. Who does inflation hurt the worst? Those on fixed income and those of the working class because they don't have extra expendable income. Most of their income goes towards things that they have to purchase each month. But where does inflation come from? A senator from Indiana described it accurately. We run a debt, this place spends money we don't have, and where's the deficit made up for? We sell that debt to the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve buys it, and he's like, wow, this is a great system. We spend money we don't have, we print up these things called treasury bills, the Federal Reserve comes over and then buys them, wow, we can just do anything we want, we have the printing press. But when they create new money and that new money enters into circulation, that is inflation. Inflation is an increase in the money supply. And when you increase the money supply, you chase the same amount of goods, you're going to chase the prices right up. And that's where inflation comes from. So the debt is not just a number. The debt is about the value of your paycheck. It's about how far your paycheck goes. So right now we're in a bit of a spiral. We've had 9% inflation. It's a little lower now, but we've had as high as 9%. And I think the cost of living increase for Social Security went up 9 to match that. But you'll actually find people who say, you know, even with the 9% increase, I still can't buy everything I need. I'm actually still being squeezed. But it's a bait and switch. It's because your government isn't honest with you. If your government wanted to be honest with you and they say, we're going to be everything to everyone, we're going to give you stuff. And it's funny because we have this comparison sometimes with Sweden and people say, and many Democrats will say, we want to be Sweden, we want to be Sweden and we're going to give you everything. We're going to have a big government that coddles you from, from cradle to grave. But you know how they do it in Sweden? With a balanced budget. And I'm not advocating we become Sweden, but they balance their annual budget every year. You know how they, got, they have all that free stuff to give everybody? How they have a safety net that includes everything, including college, free health care, everything? They tax everybody, enormous amount of tax. Over here, the bait and switch is they'll say, we're just going to tax the rich people. It's easy. Just tax the rich people. They don't do that in Sweden, though. In Sweden, they tax everybody. It's a 60% income tax beginning at $60,000 a year. So everybody pays. The middle class pays. So if we wanted to be honest and we we're going to say, we're going to give you this massive safety net. You don't have to work. Everybody can have a basic income. You do all of this we would be honest, or we should be honest, and say it would take massive taxes. Instead, there's a dishonesty, but the dishonesty is on both sides of the aisle. The Democrats say welfare is free, and the safety net's free, and Social Security's free, and all these things are free. What do Republicans say? The military-industrial complex is free. You can have all the weapons you want. You can give hundreds of billions of dollars of weapons to Ukraine, and it won't cost anything, because we'll just print it up. See, there were times in our history when you went through a war, and the devastation of war in World War II, that people actually suffered, and you could see the suffering, and people felt like they had to pay something. But now we just put it on the tab. But there is a point at which the tab gets so large that there can be something precipitous happen. The question has always been, is this a gradual problem where we'll just have to deal with a little inflation, 5%, 10% here, or is there a point at which there's a calamity. If you look at the stock market for the last 100 years, uh, some people will point to like seven different days in which like 80, 90% of the downturn occurred in seven days in the last century. Is there a possibility of calamity when we're so destructive to our dollar, when we're so destructive to good sense? I think the American people want more from us. 
Recent polls have said 60% of Americans say don't raise the debt ceiling without significant reform. 43 Republicans, 44 of us actually said we want significant reforms before we raise the debt ceiling. But then the devil's in the details. The devil's in concluding what is significant and what is not significant. So what will end up happening, my prediction here is almost every Democrat will vote to raise the debt ceiling and about half of the Republicans will vote. It'll be a 75-25 vote, and in the end, the debt ceiling will go up. People say, well, that's good, we didn't have a calamity, we didn't, the stock market didn't crash because we didn't pay our debt. But you might want to ask yourself, is this really a con- Give me three seconds, uh, Josh, three, two, I want you to hear the rest of this. Uh, one second, let's go. Contrived controversy. Is there really a reason in which we would ever default? Is there a reason why we wouldn't make our interest payment? We bring in $5 trillion and our interest payment's $500 billion. So that would be like you make $100,000 and your mortgage payment's $10,000. If you made $100,000 a year and your mortgage payment's at $10,000, is there any chance you would ever default? Is there any reason you wouldn't cut your other expenditures to prioritize your interest so you don't get kicked out of your house? That's what every American family would do, but we don't do it up here. So we threaten default. We scare the markets and say, oh, no, we'll default if the debt ceiling doesn't come up. No, we would default only if we refuse to cut spending. So we spend a trillion dollars more than comes in every year. That's the problem. If we simply said we're going to pay the $500 billion, 10% of our revenue for next year, we're going to pay the interest no matter what. And guess what? We'll tell the marketplace we're never going to default. We are, we are never going to default. We will always do that. That would be great. The market would go gangbusters and say, we no longer have to worry about those knuckleheads. They've finally decided they're going to pay their interest, and they always will. Then what would happen? Well, we wouldn't have enough money for everything. So then we, we should look at where we could save money. The problem has always been this. Republicans point at Democrats and say, we don't like your programs, let's cut your programs. Democrats look at Republicans and say, no, no, don't cut our programs, cut yours. Everybody's don't cut mine, cut yours. That's why I've taken the approach and continue to take the approach, we should cut everything across the board. In the past, there were always like conservatives who say, let's get rid of public television, let's get rid of Sesame Street and Big Bird, and they'd get so much grief over it, it's like, why do that? You're not balancing the budget over Big Bird. Take 1% of Big Bird's budget. Take 1% of everybody's budget. And what would, that, what would that bring about? It would bring about more conservation of the dollar. It would bring about more restraint and more reform. I'll end with this. People say, where would you cut? I would say everywhere. But I can give you, on the tip of my hand, ridiculous stuff that should have 100% cut but is never cut and goes on and on. In the early 1970s, William Proxmire, a conservative Democrat, pointed out that the National Science Foundation was spending $50,000 to study what makes people fall in love. Now that's a better, I think, topic for Cosmopolitan magazine than it is for a government study. Nowadays it's gone up. We spent a million dollars having young people take selfies of themselves while smiling and then looking at it later in the day to see if looking at pictures of yourself smiling makes you a happier person. That costs you a million bucks. We spent a million and a half studying the mating call of the Panamanian frog to see if the mating call of the country frogs was different than the city frogs. Wow. 
We spent nearly a million dollars studying the Japanese quail to see if they're more sexually promiscuous when they're on cocaine. I think we could have just polled the audience on that one. This is the kind of ridiculous stuff, but does it get better? I complain about this every year and all the time, and everybody shakes their head and says, no way, why are we doing that? The National Science Foundation, we increased their budget 50% last year. People said, oh, we have to compete with China, so let's give the National Science Foundation more money. We, we almost increased their budget by 50%. The people are studying why you go on dates, why you're happy, why the male frogs, you know, what their mating call is. This is the craziness, but it never gets better because we always spend more money. So my amendment would do this. My amendment would reduce the spending in real terms. We'd actually spend less money next year than last year. It'd be a 5% reduction in money, and you'd spend less each year, and over five years you'd balance your budget, and then we'd be on course to balance. People say, why not? Who can do this? Half of Europe does it. Sweden balances their budget. Germany balances their budget. Over half of the countries of Europe run an annual balanced budget. Our profligacy and our spending is catching up to us. I say we act now, and I recommend a yes vote on my amendment. Thank you, Mr. President. Isn't that kind of where a lot of us are? I mean, really and truly, when you think about it, and, and it goes back to, I mean, it's local government, it's, it's school boards, it's, it's state government, it's the federal government. When is enough enough? I mean, I understand the federal government's a different animal. I, I totally understand and acknowledge that. The federal government has the right to run a deficit. I mean, school boards don't. Local governments don't. I mean, there's a ballast budget amendment. You've got to make the budget ballast. But I think the most prophetic thing he said in there is the same thing that I said earlier uh, this morning. How do you default on your debt? If your debt, he says 500 billion, I argue it's 800 billion. I mean, I really, I mean, it, 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 I know what he's saying, but it's, th th there's different categorizations of debt. The 1.5 trillion in savings will save us about 188 billion in debt service. I still believe the number is closer to 800 billion. I mean, I'm not disagreeing with what Rand Paul, you know, I mean, conceptually, I totally agree with what he's saying there. Um, but, but it's but the it, scare test. But I mean, sure. I mean, if you've got, if you've got $5 trillion annually coming in the door, I mean, that's the revenue number. The American government collects about $5 trillion a year. The debt is 800 billion. How do you default on debt? When you've got five trillion coming in and the debt service is eight hundred billion. And what Rand Paul is arguing is, I mean, if you prioritize your spending, Rev, do you go on a vacation with your mortgage payment? No. No. That I mean, would, do, do, that would I mean be dumb. okay, if you don't have enough to go on vacation and pay your mortgage, do you go on vacation and let your mortgage go lacking? No. No, of course you don't. That, that's the concept, guys. How do we not how does anybody believe we're not going to honor our debt payment? But what Rand Paul is saying is, if we made that commitment, if we agreed that the first $800 billion in the door is set aside to honor our debt obligations, then you've got to sit down and discuss some of the other spending, defense spending, entitlement spending, welfare spending, means-tested, non-means-tested. It's absurd. And we're letting these people convince us that there's a problem with how much revenue we have in government. And I want to go back to the local issue of school board. I don't know. And I've said this emphatically clear. I don't have any idea what a teacher should make. I don't have any idea what an administrator should make. I don't have any idea what we should spend per kid in public education. But but when you ask for a tax increase, you're, you're, you're suggesting by, by action and order and edict that we aren't paying enough. 
And that's an absurd argument to make. When, when, when we operate and live our lives in the private sector, and we know how many times we uh, bump into government, I mean, how many times will you be taxed today in some way, shape, or form? I mean, it's unbelievable what, what you do and how you, when you participate in the economy, I mean, I, I went and argued with Verizon. Uh, I'm, I'm putting my business on the street. You remember the, uh, the situation I had with wireless internet mm-hmm. and Verizon was making me a better deal. And while I'm there, I'm arguing about the phone bill because I think my phone bill should be the X and it's X times 30% or 20% or whatever. And the guy said, man, you're, you're, you're arguing over taxes. I don't have anything to do with that. You know, your, your, your local government, your state government, your federal government. I mean, th- this government are taxing authority, that government taxing authority. And you're and, like, how, how much do I pay in taxes? Yeah, on I mean, you can't bill? believe. I mean, you, you, I mean, look at it one day. Right. I mean, look, you know, um, go stay at a hotel in New York City. I mean, the, the, the New York City cot tax. I mean, I'll never forget. My daughter was younger. We stayed in a hotel in New York. I called downstairs to get a cot. They said, that'll be 30 bucks. Okay, I mean that, that's expensive to me. I, it's just a cot, but uh, how much does it cost to buy the cot? <laughs> right, <laughs> I'll, I'll take it home with me. Yeah, I might take um, two. But it's thirty dollars. You get the bill the next day, and there's a six dollar user tax. The the, the city's implemented a user tax. I mean that's the mindset of government. It, it, it's thirst for money is scary. Its demand for money is is obnoxious, and I think the American public have to at some point in time say, damn. I mean, damn. I mean, I mean, how much money does it cost to run a county government, a city government, a school district, a state, a nation? Really? I mean, does it take that percentage of the private sector's prosperity to keep government whole? It's just, it's an absurdity. And I think that we're heading down a road of so offending the private sector. And it's the goose that laid the golden egg. I mean, it is the production mechanism. It generates the revenue to allow first responders to be paid, and they should, and firemen to be paid, and they should, and teachers to be paid, and they should. Those are honorable professions, and they deserve to be taken care of and compensated uh, properly. But when education fails, when local governments fail, when state governments fail, and by that I mean they fail to uh, provide the sort of services that you expect them to, to provide it's always we need more money we need more money for our roads we need more money for our schools we need more money for our our bridges we need more money for science we need more money for entrepreneurship we need more money for for entitlements and retirement. you know wow i mean when is enough enough i love what you just said government's demand for money is obnoxious it's, it's incredibly obnoxious rev i love that i mean it's 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 unbelievable and and i, and I guess it's why I mean, the old saying, you're young enough to be a liberal, old enough to be a conservative. You know, um, you, you, you don't realize how much taxes are until you live in the real world. Uh, you know, there's a little beauty in working at an early age and understanding how much money the government takes from you to do what it decides to do. And I'm not arguing that they, that they don't do good things. I mean, I'm glad we have first responders. I'm glad we have firemen and police officers. I'm glad we have school teachers. But, but it's, it's motivated by an entirely different set of criteria. The marketplace, somebody argued this week, might, might have been Nick from Lexington, great caller to the show, uh, said the marketplace decides, the marketplace doesn't decide anything in the public sector. I mean, I just refuse to buy that. I mean, if the marketplace decided, you know, price and wages in the, in the public sector, 
uh, you wouldn't have teachers unions and, you know, lobbying the government. Remember what Ralph Norman said when, when he became a no vote? How many lobbyists called him, you know, to explain why he should, you know, vote yes? I mean, that, that's interesting to me. I mean, Ralph said it. I don't know if he meant to say it or not. But, but when he announced that he was going to be a no vote, he said his phone began ringing from lobbyists. It, it's a burning desire to have more of your money. And I don't think it's evil people doing diabolical things. I don't think there's any malice in those people's heart. But they've been conditioned to believe that, that if, if, if something doesn't add up in the public sector, it's because we aren't getting enough money. And, and I just contend and have contended for many, 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 many years. The problem in the public sector is not that the amount of money, that the problem in the sector is, is the motivation of how to or not to spend X number of dollars. Take a break. Back in just a few. Four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number time for some trivia. Some um, takes Mondays to make Fridays trivia. Thanks to our good friends at Pepsi of Florence. You ready? Thanks to our good friends at Pepsi of ready Florence. Ready to rock and roll. Um, I, I thought long and hard. We won't do one Monday because we're not doing a live show Monday. Rev's going to see his mom over the weekend. You won't be back until Thursday? Right. Okay, you'll be gone Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. I'll be back Tuesday, but Monday we're doing a the best we could do of uh, Wake Up Carolina. But here's the trivia question. We highlighted Rand Paul in the last segment. I thought that was interesting to hear someone in elected office rant about the budget, kind of like somebody on the radio who <laughs> used to be in an elected office. 843-661-0937, our number. The first correct answer wins a six-pack of Pepsi product. A couple of takes Mondays to make Friday's T-shirts, courtesy of our good friends at Pepsi of Florence, Rand Paul is from what state, and who is the other senator from that same state? Rand Paul is a U.S. senator from what state? And in typical fashion, two senators from one state. Who is the other senator? Okay. Who is the um? Who is the blankety blank 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 state? You know what I mean? <laughs> right. I almost said it. Let's yeah, go to the phone. Someone's there. Hi, you're. Oh, they didn't. Okay. Eight four three six six one. 0937. Rand Paul is a senator from what state? And who is the other senator from that same state? Hi, you're on the air. You know the answer? Uh, Kentucky. Correct. And who's the other senator from Kentucky? Other than Rand Paul? Yeah. Yes. Oh. Mitch McConnell. You're right. There's it. You're right. Yeah, pulled one out of the clutch there. <laughs> Said a little uncertain to yourself. Who is this and where are you calling from? Uh, Mark Yarkey from... Uh, Sumter, South Carolina. Thank you for listening. Thank you for um for tuning in. Hang on. We'll get you back to Josh. Josh will get all the information. Yeah. Rand Paul is the junior senator from the great state of Kentucky. Mitch McConnell is the senior, and I mean senior, senator from um ain't nobody older than McConnell except um Feinstein, Biden, you know, the people that we trust to run the country. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know. I'm doing a fine job. The nation, the people running the nation or about as third as old as the country. I know. I mean, think of that. Right. The the people in charge of America are about one third as old as the um as the country is. Programming note once again, um, we won't be on the air live and in living color Monday. It'll be um I mean they call it the best of I call it the best we could do of Wake Up Carolina. But uh, we'll be back or I'll be back Tuesday. Uh, you know the situation with or a lot of you do, most of you do know the situation with Rev's mom. Um, she's 87. 
and she ain't running for president. Uh, you know, she's not the president. Yeah, true. Rev's kind of marveling at her res- resiliency. Yeah, she's doing Is that okay. fair to say? Yeah, yeah no, she's do- she's doing okay, and, and I'm going to go down and help out for a few days. Appreciate you said your brother is going on a trip, yep, and you yep. got to be down there to make sure, um, if needed, That's you're right. there. So, um, so Rev won't be with us Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. I will be back um, Tuesday, but uh, enjoy your weekend. Uh, Memorial Day weather sucked. It looks like this is going to be – we're going to get a better shake of it um, this weekend. We covered a lot of territory. Uh, we plowed a lot of new ground. Um, I've insinuated that the federal government does not want you eating meat, but rather smoking weed. So they can control us. So they can control <laughs> some of those competitive instincts that men um, naturally have. So here's my advice over the weekend. You ready? Lay off the weed and eat some beef. <laughs> Lay off the weed, eat some beef, and take control of your life. (laughs) Wrestle it away from the ever-growing federal government. Have a good weekend. We'll talk Tuesday.